Astonishing Legends would like to thank A&E, The Great Courses Plus, Best Friends, and our contributors at Patreon.com for making tonight's show possible. Last week, we began our series on the Voynich Manuscript, one of the most enigmatic handwritten books ever discovered. We shared what's known of its provenance and chain of custody with you. There have been centuries of rumors surrounding its authorship and intended use, and we've just scratched the surface of this indecipherable tome. In researching it, we've covered many bizarre theories on its origins, including the fascinating insular relationship between the legendary John Dee and a potential master con artist, Edward Kelly, who routinely spoke to the angels and gave messages from them to Dee, including one that said that they should share their wives. Tonight, we move on from Dee and Kelly and take a deep look at most of the remaining theories and investigations that have surrounded the Voynich Manuscript to date. We'll go into the current theories and research, including the various revelations of solutions to the manuscript that seem to surface every six months or so. We should also mention that we have a surprise guest tonight. He's been on the show before, but it's been years, and that was on a different topic. His name came up on our research on the Voynich Manuscript, and when we reached out to him, he informed us that he'd recently been to see it in person, so naturally, it seemed like a good time to have him back on the show. So we ask that you join us now for part two, the final part of our series on the Voynich Manuscript. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. We all want to know what the Voynich means, but most would-be interpreters begin with their own preconceptions, and their attempts to demystify the medieval past only serve to mystify it further, making the Voynich into a telling avatar of our vexed relationship with the past. Paraphrased from an August 14, 2019 Washington Post article entitled, Why Do People Keep Convincing Themselves They've Solved This Medieval Mystery? by Lisa Fagan Davis, Executive Director of the Medieval Academy of America. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the legendary Voynich Manuscript. And we're back. That we are. Uh, we got a long show tonight, so I'll keep this brief. The first and most important thing is that we're dark for two weeks after this week's show, which usually means we get a lot of emails asking when the next show is, because in reality, two dark weeks means three weekends from this one. That's if you're listening to this the day we've released it. Uh, Ooh, so to good make, math. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, I had to write that out or I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that <laughs> on the fly. Right. But to make matters easier, I'll just say we're going to be back with a new show on September 14th. In other news, you may have heard Forrest teasing a surprise guest tonight in the cold open. We'll be hearing from him in a bit, but there's something else you should know. Yes, tonight's guest spoke with us a great deal about being in the company of the actual Voynich Manuscript, but he also had a few significant updates about an extremely popular series from our past. We took those updates and made them into a standalone, commercial-free mini-show that we're releasing exclusively for our $5 and above patrons at our Patreon page in just a few days. Yeah, so uh, later on in the show, when you get to that part, you'll know what we're talking about. And if you want to check it out, head over to patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Yes, folks, and if you haven't already, check out our favorite podcast player, Himalaya, which is free to download and works on iOS and Android. And once you get it downloaded... 
Follow Astonishing Legends to keep track of our newly published episodes. All right, let's get back to MS-408, the Voynich Manuscript. We talked last time about some of the older history, and we introduced the manuscript itself, and now it seems like it might be time to get into more current theories, more contemporary theories. Yeah, some of the more modern research that's been done, and... What's interesting is that some of this research done by independent enthusiasts and independent scholars, as well as academics who have really put a lifetime of research into this document here, it's one of those things that fascinates so many people abroad. It's been claimed to be the most researched medieval manuscript ever that continues to be looked at and analyzed. What's interesting is that a lot of this research and lab work that's been done points back to these historical characters. That's why it's important, we thought, to cover them, at least all the major players. So you know who we're going to reference here later on when people say, like, I think I've solved it. It's this guy. And to hold on to that thought, because it probably hasn't been solved yet. But uh, <laughs> one of the one of the technicians who's appeared in that documentary that we mentioned, that's called The Voynich Code, the World's Most Mysterious Manuscript, and that was directed by Klaus T. Steindl and Andreas Sulzer, and runs about 50 minutes. That was released in 2010, and it's available on Amazon Prime as of this recording, and it's free if you have Amazon Prime. It covers the whole thing kind of in a nutshell. But one of the technical experts who's looked into the manuscript is Richard Santa Coloma, and his work on the manuscript will take a look back at a couple of those characters we talked about because it gets back into the angle of the optics work done perhaps by Roger Bacon. Again, he's one of the big suspects here. And also to John Dee, and it applies to him because he also experimented with optical glass and crystal balls. And there is a theory that the Voynich manuscript is actually showing things that could only be seen under significant magnification, like images that can only be seen with a microscope. And so Richard Santa Coloma has also studied the optical phenomena we talked about that appears in the manuscript. Remember when we said if you turn the page or you rotate one of the pages that's got one of those circular designs, they appear to move and animate, which is pretty cool. That takes a lot of thinking. It's very clever. He has studied that phenomena. And this is a quote from the documentary by him. At the time of Roger Bacon, the microscopes did not exist that could make the type of detailed observations that are seen in the Voynich Manuscript. Some of the drawings, as you may see online, they look like cellular structures. Remember in biology class in middle school, you would take a look at slide samples and shavings of plant cells. It kind of appears that way. That's kind of the mystery of it. Is that what we're looking at? Is that why these plants are somewhat unidentifiable? Because you are looking at something more so approaching a microscopic level. That came along a few hundred years later when Antoni von Leeuwenhoek did... Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. Are you making that name up? I am not. You've not heard of him? <laughs> say like say a, it again. Antoni von Le I think it was Anton. Antoni yeah. von Leeuwenhoek. Okay. Just, it just I'm sounds like uh, Professor now, Doofenshmirtz. No, it's... <laughs> oh, <laughs> he's right. a dear friend of ours. You went to evil science school with him, I think. I did. We didn't really hang out, but I would see him in the student union building occasionally. Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. Well, Leeuwenhoek invented the microscope, or I believe is credited with inventing the microscope. He was born in 1632 and died in 1723. Lived to be 90, pretty old for that yeah. time period. Oh, yeah, sure. But that came along way after the manuscript was authored. So if somebody had access to that kind of magnification... 
that much earlier, that would be a really significant discovery. That would be a really significant thing. Absolutely. And it's also, I believe, mentioned in the documentary, another gentleman who I know you're going to love because he has a pretty cool invention that is right up your alley. It's another note mentioned in the documentary that it wasn't until the early 17th century when Cornelius Drebbel, who was a Dutch engineer and inventor, and get this, builder of the first navigable submarine in 1620. Oh, yes. You owe so much of your TV and movie viewing time to him (laughs) (laughs) for your love of submarine action movies. I'm a big fan of those and the books. Well, that's pretty cool. But he also developed a complex and sophisticated twin convex lens microscope, the type that you would need to be able to see the types of things which seem to show up in the Voynich Manuscript itself. Yeah, Leeuwenhoek's microscope was a single lens, I believe. So oh, there you go. So he's, yeah, he's so twice as... Uh, another advancement. Yeah. Right, twice as good. <laughs> but this whole theory about the images being something that can only be seen with a microscope is not new. Some of this information really interestingly comes from an article, a Washington Post article called Why Do People Keep Convincing Themselves They've Solved This Medieval Mystery? And this is by <laughs> Lisa Fagan Davis, who is the executive director of the Medieval Academy of America. And she regularly writes about medieval manuscripts on her blog, The Manuscript Road Trip. I really love her approach, so we're going to take a look at some analyzation about all these new and recent and continuing discoveries and declarations about the manuscript. But she notes that in June 1921, the monthly magazine Hearst's International announced that the University of Pennsylvania professor William Newbold had, quote, come upon the key to the secret cipher of the Voynich Manuscript, and the truth of 600 years ago is coming out. There's an exclamation point and <laughs> the close quote there. But Fagan Davis says, Newbold surmised that 13th century English scientist Roger Bacon, remember him? We just talked about him, had written the manuscript with the aid of a microscope and a telescope centuries before the invention of either instrument. Newbold's solution was debunked in 1931 by University of Chicago classicist John Matthews Manley in a journal of medieval studies called Speculum, leaving Newbold posthumously disgraced. And just kind of goes on to say that, you know, these guys were friends, but after a few years or many years, Manley felt a moral imperative to come out in the interests of scientific truth to say that, well, Newbold's claims are entirely baseless and should be definitely and absolutely rejected, which is a pattern we'll see repeated throughout the decades up to today. So coming back to Santa Coloma, apparently he had first thought that the manuscript could be some kind of notebook, some scientific notebook with details of actual observations that had been made through a microscope or microscopic experiments conducted by Cornelius Drebbel. But over time, He came to believe that the Voynich Manuscript was actually just a fantasy document because it contained way too many fantasy elements, too many things that they could not tie to reality. I'm willing to entertain that for two reasons. One is that it does appear to be maybe, as I think I mentioned earlier, to be some kind of scientist's notebook, possibly. It's not meant to be read by a wider audience, but certainly detailed notes by a scientist, maybe some, uh, you know, a few close associates who could read this coded language meant to be kept private and safe, but not for the wider audience. So it, it does look like notations, careful drawings, carefully laid out. At the same time, though, because it's so indecipherable and fantastical, maybe it is just a crazy book of 
a bunch of nonsensical language and text and drawings to go with it meant to baffle people by either a prankster with a lot of time on his hands or somebody who was a little off, shall we say, just well, I would say somebody notes. with a psychological need to create it. Yeah, I'm totally down to entertaining that possibility. And this is because some of the most strange drawings in it don't appear to represent anything realistic or from the reality that we know. I guess in a way you could say it's say possibly a kind of 17th century or earlier science fiction. Well, Santa Coloma figured out that in the early 1600s, when Drebbel was in London, a lot of people had a lot of interest in arcane books of secret knowledge, that that was the thing at the time that everybody was interested in. So he felt like if anybody could have created the Voynich Manuscript, it would be something that you could probably get a fair amount of money for. Mm -hmm. It was just all about the execution, which obviously the Voynich Manuscript is very well executed for what it is, whatever it is. And so Santa Coloma felt that was a plausible idea, was that somebody had created it to sell it. Because at the time, I don't know if fad is the right word, but an academic fad of sorts, people wanted these books that looked like this that uh, had secrets in them were incredibly popular and were fetching a pretty penny in the book collection market. Right. So it was a well-executed piece of hoaxing, you could say, which, of course, the better the hoax, the more money you could fetch because it would be even more mysterious that nobody could crack it or read it or, you know, and it also sparks the imagination of of smart and wealthy people. Right. So you get into that whole, you need to have that skill set, not only the artistic skill set, but if you could apply a skill set of some knowledge of whether it was medical sciences or mm-hmm. herbal science or for the time that it was theoretically supposed to have been authored, if you could apply all that and mix it together and then also put it into some kind of <laughs> unbreakable code, then who's to say that's not what it is? Nobody can say because nobody knows what it is. Yeah, exactly. But that alone raises doubts. Because one thing that restorator Paula Zayats had noticed, now she did look at the manuscript through a microscope, a lot of people have so far, but she was surprised, as we'd mentioned earlier, by just the technical skill, the precision used in creating these text characters and these illustrations, and that the surface of the parchment was still pretty smooth and undisturbed. No abrasions, really, indicating that with these over 200 pages of drawings and writing, there weren't many, if any, noticeable errors or corrections. And that seems really improbable for any manuscript writer of the period. And to this day, I mean, we all make mistakes in writing, even if you're copying something, you know, your mind gets off track and you accidentally write down a word twice. Things happen. And this perfect execution then raises doubts. There's another thing about it, too. There's only one source of information about the story of this Voynich manuscript being discovered, and that source is Wilfred Voynich himself. And so there's speculation that Voynich may have been the author himself in the early 20th century. Right. Because he, he's a rare book dealer and a very smart guy, knowledgeable with languages, technically skilled, and guess what? Voila! He has found a really valuable ancient manuscript full of secret knowledge, and who doesn't want to buy that off of him? It's unique, it's extremely valuable, and think of the fame and money that would garner somebody who was really smart and connected and uh, had the means and and the connections to pull this off. I guess that's an enticing motivation, but... Based on what little cursory research that I've done into his background, it doesn't fit with his character. 
to be a forger. As we said, he was a really interesting guy. We said the cold open for part one and a bit of a showman, you know, because these things don't get found out. If you're a wallflower and you don't tell anybody about it, you don't want to be in the public eye. Here's an interesting article that one of our volunteer researchers, Paul S., in the ARC and using our aggregate note-taking collection app, (laughs) River, posted. There's several articles of the time, of the period, that detail Wilfred Voynich's showcasing of the manuscript. One of those is entitled Ancient Manuscript to be Shown in Museum from the Detroit Times, November 4th, 1915. And one of the other titles is Books Worth 8 Million, European Bibliophile Brings His Collection to America. And that was reported in the Kansas City Times, Friday, November 2nd, 1915. So apparently this Voynich gentleman took his show on the road. And by 1915, he was showing this thing off everywhere. And basically, there's a bunch of different publications in newspapers and magazines around the same time, all saying the same thing. So he was making it known that he had found this thing, you know, which, again, you could say, look, he's just doing it because this thing should be known to the world. It may contain some really valuable information. On the other hand, the skeptics would say, well, there you go. He's drumming up interest and dollar signs are appearing in his eyes. But that's what they say about... Every single story we look at that you can connect to the person who discovered it or participated in it, everyone, the first thing everybody says, oh, they're just trying to make money. Oh, they're just trying to get rich. There's nothing you can do because if you don't take it on the road and publicize, well, there you go. He's keeping it secret. See? It's all to himself. Keeping it secret. It doesn't matter what you do. If you have found anything interesting like a metal sphere or a book or you saw something strange... People are coming after you, trying to discredit you in some way. And that's the easiest thing everyone goes to. Well, there you go. He's just trying to make some money. And a fair number of times, that's the case. But getting back to the technical examination of the manuscript here, there's one gentleman, Joseph Barabi, and he's a material science microscopy expert. And he, along with his team, have actually exposed a lot of forgeries throughout history. This is what they do. They look for forgeries, yes. That's one of the things he does, yeah. So he offers his services, he and his team, and again, they take a look at it on the microscopic level, and they can It's a forensic analysis. Yeah, right. So what he does as a material science expert is he focuses mainly on the materials. What was this thing put together with? And he looks to see if any of the working methods are inappropriate for the time frame that the, the item, in this case the VM, was supposedly created. Yeah, and what's interesting about this is he's really taking a look at it on an elemental level, taking molecular samples and examining everything he can to get at the origins, whether it's the ink or the vellum, the paper that it's written on, whatever else he can get a hold of that he can do in a non-destructive way. He does have Mm -hmm. to remove particles for it, but it's very, very minimal. And they use spectrometers to figure out what the ink is composed of. And in so doing this, they can analyze where and when things came from and determine whether or not they are period correct for the idea of when this document was supposedly written, which is really fascinating. So because if you get, for example, the vellum or the paper that it was written on for, it's not really paper, but it's like paper. It's It's, it's their paper of the day, sure. It's their paper of the day. Before the type of paper we know was invented. And another fascinating technique and field of study is crystallography, crystallographic methods are used, and it tells you about the chemistry 
used. Uh, right, the chemistries of the inks, mm-hmm. and also how hard it is to create those inks and the time period that they would have been made. Because at the time, you would, in theory, based on when it was supposedly created or authored, you would have had to have a whole skill set just to produce the colors that were used. Mm-hmm. So you can take a look at that with mass spectrometers and determine what kind of materials were used to make the colors and if those materials would have been present at the time that it was supposedly authored. Yeah, exactly. And with crystallographic methods, what you're determining is the arrangement of atoms in crystalline solids taken from these samples. And that tells you exactly what that sample is, which is fascinating because you're, now you're really, you can say, drilling down on this thing. And to Barabi, you know, if it's a forgery, most forgers, they found out, will make stupid mistakes. So he takes samples of the paint and ink from various locations within the manuscript and and does a workup on it. And his determination was that the ink was an iron gall ink, with the text having been applied with a quill pen. Yeah, explain to everyone here what iron gall ink is. Well, I'm not really equipped to explain that, but I will let Wikipedia explain (laughs) it. Oh, very good. That's probably best. (laughs) I didn't know what it was either. I'd never heard of it. It's also known as common ink, standard ink, oak gall ink, or iron gall nut ink. It is a purple black or brown black ink made from iron salts and tannic acids from vegetable sources. Like the galatanic acid was usually extracted from oak galls or galls of other trees, hence the name. It was the standard ink formulation used in Europe for the 1400-year period between the 5th and 19th centuries, and it remained in widespread use well into the 20th century and is actually still sold today. Really interesting. Well, I love ink. I I love writing in ink and pens. Yeah, I know. I I told one of our listeners that you actually had a little bit of skill with uh, calligraphy, and uh, they didn't believe me. Yeah, because that's totally false. That's uh, that was (laughs) you should have told them that that was completely erroneous. Well, Uh, but I do love the art of handwriting. (laughs) No, I I do try, and uh, my dad was really good at it. He was an illustrator, so I picked up a lot of that uh, skill and, and practice. But I'm nowhere near the quality that you see even in the Voynich manuscript, or even the guy portraying to be the author of the Voynich manuscript in the documentary, because he realized oh, that yes. they have to recreate in the, the pages. German documentary. Yes. But no, I, I thought it was really interesting. Like I didn't, I'd heard of the term iron gall ink before, never really looked into it much, but a gall is kind of a weird abnormal growth on a tree, in this case, an oak tree, caused sometimes, I think by fungus, bacteria, or an insect, a certain oh. type of wasp, larva can cause this defect, and it's like a big wart on a tree. So from that and the tannic acids garnered from it and iron salts, you can make this ink, which has seemed to work pretty well. It's lasted all this time, and the colors, at least the black for the text, is pretty solid here. And uh, the other colors are pretty solid and well done themselves, like the blue color that was found to be a ground azurite. It's a soft, deep blue copper mineral produced by weathering of copper or deposits. And the mineral, a carbonate, has been known since ancient times and was mentioned in Pliny the Elder's natural history under the Greek name guanos, meaning deep blue. And it's the root for the English word cyan. You certainly know cyan as a, as a video editor, I would hope. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, The red and the brown colors are iron earth pigments, uh, red ochre with hematite. What they found is that the minerals which constitute the writing and the painting that are found in the manuscript are completely appropriate to the 15th and 16th centuries. And more importantly, they did not find any materials that would indicate it was a 19th or 20th century forgery. So that perhaps lets Wilfred Voynich off the hook. 
That also, like all these theories that compete with each other, takes Santa Coloma's idea that it was an opportunistic forgery and says that that would be, I guess not unlikely, but unlikely to have been produced at a different time period from when it was said that it would be produced. Exactly. So if it was a forgery, it was at least done in the time period. Right. There are some other things that they've noted here, the inks and paints, uh, at least to Barabi, it seems, are authentic. Because in the past centuries, colored pigments were expensive and required complex knowledge and skill. So this thing was not sloppily put together. In a lot of the cases, the colors used in the manuscript, Arabic gum was used to bind the pigments together because you can have minerals, but you need something to make that powder actually into a paint. And applying the mineral pigments requires technical skill. And it took this skill to apply the colors with the care that is shown in this manuscript. So in other words, the author and the artist knew what they were doing in making an illuminated or illustrated manuscript. So it wasn't sloppily done. However, there is a contrast, though, because some of these drawings, as noted by people, and even the amateur eye, if you just go look at them, they appear kind of childlike. They're not really well done. I mean, it's a good for a sketchbook. That's why I was alluding to earlier is that this is not somebody who is a portrait painter, but maybe some kind of scientist who could sketch well enough. But the drawings, to some, even appear naive. Well, like some of the examples of these childlike drawings would be like a little dragon that appears on a page or the naked women with blushing cheeks. And they seem kind naked. of crude. Yeah, the naked ones. They look like they were maybe drawn by a kid or just in these types of drawings, they're more primitive and childlike, at least in comparison to the better drawn plants. Yeah, so there's a disconnect there that's interesting because you have these plants... Again, mixed fantasy and reality, but more fantasy than reality, but very detailed in their depictions that almost suggest the access to microscopic equipment. Mm -hmm. But then you have the human figures that really do look like something you might draw in third grade. <laughs> well, if it is a third grader, or let's say a precocious and gifted 10-year-old, what gifted 10-year-olds do we know from history that could have pulled this off? Well, there is one major theory about uh, a young person who was very talented early on and turned out to be one of the greatest minds of all time, and that theory is put forward by scholar Edith Sherwood, and her theory is that it was none other than Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, and this makes sense. Da Vinci was a gifted child. His family was uh, fairly well off, and Sherwood points out that if you consider the quality of some of the drawings, they're not very sophisticated, and her suggestion is that Although he was on his way to becoming one of the most famous and talented artists of all time, maybe he hadn't quite figured out at that young age how to draw the human figure. Mm -hmm. And so this was an example of types of works that he would later create as he got older with his notes and the manuscripts that he made where he was inventing things and doing all kinds of drawings. And maybe this was just him as a child getting into that and starting out on that path. Although, to me, there's a pretty big distance between his work and what the children and the women look like in the Voynich Manuscript. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't seem like, for me, that line A connects to line B there on those dots. Yeah, totally. If you look at his later work as, uh, as a mature adult, uh, he certainly developed a style. But, you know, her thing is that, well, he's He's maybe, I don't know, 9, 10 years old, 11 years old. He's just starting out. He has ideas, and, and again, it's a little bit cheeky, you know, drawing nude women. And so kids do that. They like codes. They like 
hidden things and like experimenting with writing. And he was about all this stuff. So some of it looks sophisticated and some of it isn't. But there are a few things that did catch Sherwood's attention and make the connections to da Vinci. One of them being an astrological chart in the manuscript showing 15 little nude ladies in a circle sitting in tubs, which look clearly pregnant to most people. And in the center of the drawing is a ram symbolizing the astrological symbol Aries. And so one hypothesis that comes from her statement in the film, the Aries symbol could stand for the month of April and surrounded by 15 pregnant women. And if each woman represents one day, the illustration could represent April 15th. The women are holding up stars in their hands, symbolizing birth, with one woman holding up her star on a striped ribbon that circles the drawing, and she's in her tub at a 10 o'clock position in the circular drawing. So would that event mean something for Leonardo? Well, possibly it's his birthday. He was born either on April 15th or 14th in 1452. He passed away May 2nd, 1519. So again, a young person kind of in code in some symbolic way marking their birthday. That's one of the points of Edith Sherwood's theory that she's worked up. Hi, I'm Heather Williams, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. Well, in these scenes in The Voynich Code, the documentary that we keep referring to, Edith Sherwood speculates that the manuscript might have been an early attempt or an exercise by him to write a coded book, because he later went on to produce coded texts. Well, that's a fascinating theory on a possible author as a young Leonardo, budding genius, not quite there yet. But Edith Sherwood is just one of many modern researchers to try and fit a theory to the mystery. But of course, she's not the first researcher to really dive into the mysteries that may be in the lines of the manuscript. Of course, the first person in the 20th century to do that was Wilfred Voynich himself. And according to his 1921 publication about his research into the manuscript here, some of those letters that he had written about it, those are still actually in the collection of the Beinecke Library that it came with the book. He believed that there were two 13th century scholars that may be the likely authors of the book. One was Albertus Magnus and the other one, Roger Bacon. And after a few years of research, he settled on it being Roger Bacon. And he probably got this idea because of the letters that he found that came with the manuscript, that letter we talked about from Marcy, which was folded inside the manuscript. So he studied it for about at least seven years and try to delve into the history because as a antiques collector, he's all about establishing provenance with the book. Of course, that determines value as well. If he can determine a real person as being the author, a real person in history, the value goes way up. But of course, Wilfred Voynich himself was not the first person to take a crack at this either, because in the margins of the Voynich manuscript, there's even earlier research, possibly hundreds of years, possibly right after this manuscript was found by someone other than the original author, because there seem to be attempts at deciphering it that you can see under UV illumination. Kind of what we talked about with the scratched out Jacobius name. You can't really see it with a naked eye, but it's very faint and it's there. And it looks to be a table of three columns that are in the right-hand margin. And it's very faded. It looks like it possibly was erased at the time, way back when. 
could be, again, hundreds of years old. Most likely it is several hundred years old, and it's only seen under special lighting. But in these columns there, they can tell that the first has characters that look like they're from the Latin alphabet. The second column seems to be lined up with the first, and it has in it what look to be characters from the Voynich manuscript itself. In the third column, and it's a little displaced, it's, it's offset, but there also appear to be Latin characters, but shifted by one position. So what does that tell you, Scott? Somebody was trying to decipher this, possibly using a shift code. Yeah, they were trying to lay out the characters and see if they could shift the Latin alphabet by one character and see if it would line up with some kind of decipherment for Latin with it. Right, and there's one interesting idea is that maybe the original author had left that for subsequent readers to use to try and decipher the manuscript itself and was erased, or very likely it was a very early owner of the manuscript after the original author who didn't know how to read it and was trying to crack it himself. Right. But there's a problem with trying to solve the Voynich manuscript in this way, because if you use methods like entropy analysis and other statistical analysis methods, it doesn't line up. It doesn't yield a direct translation either from Latin into Voynichese and vice versa. You still get a mystery here. So actually what it looks like is this table that was written in the margin was not by the author. It is by somebody who came later, but maybe not that much later, maybe a hundred or a couple of hundred years afterwards, and tried to decipher it wasn't successful. But here's something interesting that a modern cryptographer has put forth as a possible theory. Dr. Gerhard Strasser has an interesting theory, an alternative to this, thinking that these are notes made by a later owner of the manuscript who was trying to create their own code using the cipher alphabet that was found in the Voynich manuscript. But we also don't know who created this cipher table in the margins, because like the name on the first page, Jacobus de Tepenich, which we talked about earlier, it's faded, it's been erased, it looks like it's been uh, scratched out, and it looks like it may have predated Kircher, who was sent, remember the, uh, the genius guy who was sent the manuscript to try and figure out, because it's more than likely that it was done before he was given the book. So Bartius and Marcy could have been people who had tried to do this on their own and given up and then just kind of scratched it out. Well, Strasser is an expert in historical codes. So coming back around to the idea of this shift code that seemed like somebody was trying to work out in the margins, Strasser thinks that the technology available in terms of coding at the time that this was written, might have involved shift codes. One of the earliest shift codes was known as the Caesar Code, and this was a code that Julius Caesar used and was popular for quite some time. But the catch with that is, is it's basically a decoder ring kind of idea. It's mm -hmm. very easy to use, but it's also very easy to crack, especially using modern methods. It's just not, there's no kind of significant barrier to figuring it out. In fact, if you're dealing with a standard alphabet of 26 characters, it's only going to take you 25 attempts to calculate what the shift is. Yeah, exactly. You just need to know how many letters the alphabet's been shifted by, meaning A now equals D. Right. B now equals E. As long as you know that, then it's pretty easy to crack. Now, in Julius Caesar's time, he got away with it for a while. By around 1330, apparently the papal court tried to create a code book because, again, these codes were being cracked. They needed a, a more complicated coding method so what they would do is change words. So strategically, you could replace the word pope or church or king. You could replace those whole words with a single letter or a single character. So 
that makes it a lot harder to crack. But you need a code book. You need to write down so that everybody knows what these letters actually represent as far as whole words. It's like you're developing a shorthand. Yeah, exactly. So to do that, though, the receiver of the code needs to have that list of what these letters represent, because now you're replacing whole words, not just shifting down other letters in the alphabet. But the problem is when you have that list, you have to continuously update it. You have to shift it around to the people who are, like you said, are receiving the codes. There's a whole lot of maintenance that goes along with it. So you have tools at your disposal, which makes it easier. Something called a cipher disk was a lot easier to manipulate rather than a giant book of, <laughs> of a couple hundred different code words that you've changed around that then everybody has to have. Imagine it like the old decoder ring. I know that's probably way out of... Uh, if you were born probably in the 80s or earlier, you might know what that is. Good luck afterwards. But it's something that used to get in a cereal box sometimes. And you wore it on your, you know, like a ring, actually. It was plastic. That's what it was. It was a cipher disk. So you turn it, and then you have uh, the answers to the substitutions for various letters and numbers. But by the late 16th century, that was going out of fashion. And then they turned to a cipher square, which was a giant grid, which made it more complicated and therefore more secure. And we talked about that a little bit in the Oak Island Shakespeare Francis Bacon discussion. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. So the more you add to the code, the more hard it gets to crack. From our modern technological perspective here, we can, by use of computer, crack a lot of those. So as you see in the film, Rene Zandbergen asked Dr. Gerhard Strasser if any of these old codes can still be unbroken using our modern methods. And Strasser says, well, with enhanced frequency analysis, and you use computers, of course, to run the variations on that, you can crack most coded texts up to the 17th and even 18th centuries. So the 1600s and the 1700s, those codes we can pretty easily crack using a computer. But you need a critical mass of data to do that. And so 30 characters are not sufficient. You need more data input for the computers to effectively run the program here. And the other thing you need is the original text has to make sense, which is what we don't know about the Voynich manuscript. Does it actually make sense in some other language? But what we can infer with that manuscript is that it is old enough that it should be able to be cracked. And it's interesting that no one has yet. So how many characters does the Voynich Manuscript have? Well, as we said, it's got at least 170,000 characters, not all different, of course, but those have all been electronically analyzed, plugged into a computer, and the distribution pattern of each character can then be compared to other patterns of known natural languages. So what do they find when they do that? Well, some characters occur more often than others, kind of like how particular vowels in European languages occur more often than the others. But the strange thing they found about the Voynich manuscript is that the letters do not correspond neatly with phonetic patterns of any natural language. Well, you can analyze those characters and how often they occur and where they occur in the text, and it's not giving us any clue as to uh, a similarity between that and any other natural language. So despite all the computers that we have and the technical tools we have at our disposal these days, no one can make any sense of it yet. All right, so this brings us to another gentleman who's done an analysis of it. He's a British professor. His name is Gordon Rugg, and he has degrees in linguistics, French, and a PhD in psychology. 
And his overall thought is that there's not any real cipher in the manuscript at all. And he is basing that on the fact that nobody has been able to crack it. And he's suggesting that since it's uncrackable, the message there is that there is no message. Yeah, it's a fascinating, and and it makes sense to me, is that the reason we can't crack it, a cipher of this age should be crackable. We should have been able to see some kind of pattern at least and match it up with some known language. But the fact that you can't do that there's another line of thinking in that you're not going to because there is no language. It doesn't make sense. He also had done a linguistic analysis of it, and he was able to reverse engineer the frequency and appearance of some of the word tokens that were in the document. And he found a method that seems to mate up with the way that the words are appearing in the Voynich manuscript. And this is called the card and grill method. And the idea of this is if you're old enough to remember the old computer punch cards that computers had back in the day, you have a card kind of like that with holes cut out in it, little square holes maybe, and you hold it over written words and you use those holes to choose words to write your code. And that's called the card and grill. I thought it meant it was an actual card and a grill, but it kind of is. It kind of is. It kind of is in a way, but it's card and C-A-R-D-A-N. I thought it was card and grill as well. This is uh, another thing that they demonstrated in that documentary. It's pretty amazing to check out. What he's saying is you can use this method to create a meaningless text, but it has the appearance of a language, or it, it, it works just enough to make you think that something is there, but it's not there. And he's saying you can also use this system to pretty quickly write out something that would appear to be language that isn't necessarily. Well, that's important because if you're trying to hoax something, you don't want just a thousand different meaningless characters, which off the bat looks like gibberish. Right. You're trying to sell this as an actual mystical language or a secret language of some kind or a code that actually refers to a real language. So what you need there, even if you're of the era there in the uh, 1700s through the 1200s and Roger Bacon's time, is that to the eye, there has to appear to be a pattern, or it helps if there does appear to be a pattern. Right. So in a way, the card and grill method is the card up the sleeve of a con artist. It's like I'm thinking of the Grifters or the Flim Flam Man or these movies Mm -hmm. about con artists. or It's a method that somebody knows, well, hey, if we apply this to this, it's really going to trick people. So that's essentially what Rugg seems to be saying, right? Would you agree with that, Forrest? Yeah, because what he's saying is that it wouldn't take that long to invent a language or to make it over 200 pages of text look like some kind of real coded language. You have a big table, uh, you have letters out laid out on a grid. Using this card with the holes cut out in this pattern, you could pretty quickly write down this language. So you could pretty quickly generate things that look like words into things that look like sentences just using this pattern. It also offers an explanation for the possibility of not really making mistakes because you're, Mm -hmm. as you're using this overlay, you're able to see exactly what it is that you're supposed to be writing down. Then who would do something like this? Who would use this kind of method of trickery to generate a book that looks so real that maybe somebody might want to buy it? Well, Rugg believes it was none other than Elizabethan adventurer Edward Kelly. And what Rugg says about him is that, you know, in his case, he had the means, he had the motive, and the opportunity. And also, he thinks he had the personality to do it, because he's one of those that believes that he was a bit of a shyster. A good old-fashioned charlatan. So, 
that lines up for Gordon Rugg about a possible suspect for this. And also, like I said, what makes sense to me is that, remember we talked about Edward Kelly and him supposedly speaking with the angels. And the way he described how he did that sounded very similar to the Cardin Grill method. A table, what he would see in these visions or looking into the crystal ball or the mirror of asphaltum or whatever he was using for his scrying techniques that he apparently sold John D on as being authentic. Yeah, it's a little like the Cardin Grill method where something is actually pointing to a pattern of words. It doesn't make sense. But in Kelly's case, as you remember, he said the actual English translations came out of the angel's mouths on a tiny strip of paper. So we're not seeing that here, but it may be the same idea that Gordon Rugg is thinking like, well, that's how Kelly did it for this book. He didn't have to think up something new. He just used that same method to manufacture the Voynich manuscript. It's like a stock ticker. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully without the noise. It sounds, uh, it, it could be pretty annoying quickly. It's time to move on to some more current folks. And we're going to move through these a little bit quicker. These guys have all had a stake in the game with the Voynich Manuscript, and some of them have developed some pretty heady theories. The first person I want to mention is William Romain Newbold. Newbold was a philosopher who was actually famous for his lectures and writings on theological psychology, Christian Gnosticism, and cryptography. So that's how he got involved in this picture. And he believed that the visible text in the Voynich Manuscript actually had no meaning. He thought, and it was something I mentioned a minute ago, the word shorthand, he thought mm. it was a shorthand system, specifically one from ancient Greece. Now, if shorthand is something I think, I feel like more people knew about that. When I was a kid, I know that uh, my mom used to work for a legal firm in mm -hmm. Colorado and Denver, and she had to know shorthand at the time. And it, this is an abbreviated symbolic writing system. And it's designed to allow you to write very, very quickly because the symbols can represent full words. And this is, it's the same kind of idea that develops into stenography and what stenography is today for court reporters and that sort of thing. Right. It's right. what's the quickest way for us to write down what's being said without having to take the time to write every single letter of a word or idea. Yeah, you often see this in the movies and TV, you know, when the old-fashioned reporter and they've just got a notebook and somebody's rattling off like, you know, who they saw robbing the liquor store last night. They're kind of jotting it down really quickly. We well, have to be accurate too. You have to be able to read your own notes when you get done with it. And if you've ever watched a court drama, maybe you've never been on jury duty, but you'll see someone using that little tiny machine on a stand and they're they're doing it very quietly. I mean, for the other purpose is that you can't have somebody there sitting there with a typewriter or even typing a whole words out on a computer, it's hard to type that fast even. So to do it quietly, that machine they're using and that long roll of paper tape is producing a type of shorthand. But yeah, it's a lost art. I, I'm sure a lot of uh, younger folks don't even know what that is. But remember those steno notebooks there? Yes. Uh, Greg ruled, I think, and it was divided down the middle. That's what that's for. Well, Newbold was convinced that that's what was happening with the manuscript, and he deciphered full paragraphs, which, as far as he was concerned, proved that Roger Bacon was the author. Bacon, whom we've mentioned earlier, is the 13th century Franciscan friar and English philosopher. Remember that date range, by the way, the 13th century or the 1200s. But Newbold felt that Bacon had done this using a microscope, as to something we alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. 400 years before von Leeuwenhoek invented it, right. the single lens one at the very least. 
Newbold's conclusions have apparently, however, since been dismissed as far too speculative. According to a language studies expert from the University of Chicago named John Matthews Manley, Newbold's approach to his conclusions was overly pliable and therefore he could have made any theory fit. And in fact, the mistaken analysis is now chalked up to our old friend, pareidolia. Which now people deny exists uh, as well. So yeah. I don't even know if that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> the next guy I want to talk about is Joseph Martin Feely. Now Feely is, he's kind of a, a minor mention here. He published a book in 1943 stating again, as many others had, that Roger Bacon was the author. His book was entitled Roger Bacon's Cipher, The Right Key Found. This idea, again, has been dismissed. We'll explain why later. The next guy I want to talk about is Lionel Strong. He's a cancer researcher and amateur cryptographer, and he said that the text had been written by a 16th century author named Anthony Oscom, A-S-C-H-A-M. Oscom published several books, including A Little Herbal and Anthony Oscom, His Treatise of Astronomy, declaring what herbs and all kinds of medicines are appropriate and also under the influence of the planets, signs, and constellations. Now, Strong passed away in 1982, and after he died, several of his papers were posthumously released, and they were thought to have demonstrated a far too subjective approach to his conclusions, so they've generally been discounted. Now we're getting into some of the more interesting folks. Robert S. Brumbaugh, he was a Yale professor who claimed that the manuscript was a forgery that had been made to fool Emperor Rudolph II into buying it, which is something that we've already mentioned before. And Forrest, it's not clear to me. I have to just go ahead and cop to this. This may have been the guy that came up with that idea. I'm not sure if he's the first oh. one or not. Um, but that theory, we've mentioned it a few times, and that again connects to Ed Kelly that we talked about before. Now, Brumbaugh's position is cited on page 37 of a paper called The Voynich Manuscript, An Elegant Enigma. This was written by noted American cryptographer, linguist, and cryptanalyst Mary Dimperio. It was published in 1978. We actually found it online with the Defense Technical Information Center, which I had not heard of until we found this. The DTIC is a repository for U.S. Department of Defense research and engineering information. Here's the cool thing about it. The general public can see unclassified information through its public website, which we have a link to, including Brumbaugh's paper. Now, in this paper, Mary Dimperio details Brumbaugh's approach and theories on the manuscript, trying to follow his logic and deductions, which is too much to get into here, but this statement on page 38 of the paper sums up her overview on Brumbaugh well. Quote, There is just enough plausibility in the process to lead one on, but not enough to leave one satisfied. And she takes a very friendly approach to what he had concluded, but she just can't quite get there. And by the way, if you find this paper on, or you look at it from the link that we have, the front page of it is just so cool. It's all these stamps and Department of Defense stamps and stuff on the front. It literally mm. looks like a prop from uh, Three Days of the Condor. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> internally, I think this idea seems to come up a lot with the theories and hypotheses surrounding the manuscript. It doesn't quite get there. There's a lot of things that almost work, but nothing quite gets there. So we're going to talk a little bit more about Mary D'Imperio a little bit later on. I also want to talk about Stephen Bax, B-A-X, and this is a pretty interesting thing. This is when we're getting into mystery-solved territory, and this is an interesting idea how this all might work. Bax and Swedish-Australian linguist Sean R.L. King published an article in March of 2014 stating that they had translated 10 words from the manuscript using methodology that had been proven to work with Egyptian hieroglyphs. Uh, we have a link to that article. It's entitled Voynich F. 6V, 
Ricinus communis, the castor oil plant, question mark. And I'm not sure I'm saying ricinus, it might be ricinus, but it is about ricin. So the, the oh, it, well, yeah, ricin is made uh, from the castor bean. Yes, a highly dangerous poison. And I know we mentioned the Jason Davis website before, D-A-V-I-E-S, because he had scans of the Voynich Manuscript available on his website that were created by the Beinecke Library. And we're discussing a particular page in the manuscript here. And this is how you identify a particular page. This is going to be Voynich F6V, as mentioned in the title of the article. That means folio 6 verso, which means left. It would be F6R or folio 6 recto if the image were on the right side of the same page. So to find this particular image of the plant that we're talking about right now, you look in the Voynich manuscript at folio 6 verso on the left side, and we'll have a link to it as well. What's fascinating about this paper and this article is that it all centers around the positive identification of one of the plants in the manuscript, a castor oil plant. Now, it gets pretty detailed, but the paper cites several respected botanists and researchers over the years who all agree that F6V shows a castor oil plant, or as it would have been linguistically referred to at the time, Ricinus communis. Using that knowledge, they're then able to take that and decode the name of the plant on the page, and as a result, they were able to decipher around 10 words. They wanted to do so much more, but unfortunately, Mr. Bax passed away in 2017 before that could happen. Well, here's an interesting note, though. Ricin can be derived from the castor bean as well as castor oil. If you've seen Breaking Bad, you'll know what we're talking about. It's featured prominently but castor oil is also significant in the healing poultices of Edgar Casey's holistic health remedies. Oh, very interesting. And I just want to say poultice as many times as I can in every show. <laughs> I've seen it uh, sold there, and uh, you apply it to a cotton gauze pack, and I believe uh, he recommends placing it over the stomach area. And there is a solution, though, you need to wipe it off with. I think a baking soda or something that um, kind of neutralizes that. So it's not deadly. It's not poisonous. But yeah, castor oil is pretty powerful. So coming back on that, this is an interesting idea. I mean, when you look at the plant and you look at images of a castor oil plant, you can see where they might have been able to do that. And this is an idea that's going to come up over and over is can we just figure out one thing on the page and use that to unravel what's happening here? And we'll talk more about that with our surprise guest at the end of this show. Another person that deserves honorable mention for his work is University of Alberta professor Greg Kondrak, who, according to Wikipedia, is a natural language processing expert. He worked with one of his graduate students, Bradley Hauer, using computational linguistics, that's a term that's going to keep coming up, mm -hmm. to try and decode the manuscript. And they came to the conclusion that the manuscript is most likely Hebrew, but encoded using alphabetically ordered anagrams known as alphagrams. However, to their credit, and they have acknowledged this openly, experts in medieval manuscripts who have reviewed their work are not convinced. Hmm. Getting further, we now go to what I like to call mystery solved number one, <laughs> Nicholas Gibbs. I don't know how many people remember when Ars Technica published an article on September 8th of 2017 entitled, The Mysterious Voynich Manuscript Has Finally Been Decoded? Question mark. History researcher says that it's a mostly plagiarized guide to women's health. 
Mystery no. solved. And I'll tell you what, on that day, we got a lot of tweets and emails from people mm-hmm. who are, have you seen this? Have you seen this? Twitter, Instagram, everybody was hitting us on Facebook too. By the way, never stop doing that. We love getting that information. Don't mistake our discussion on this as disdain for that kind of stuff. It's great to hear from you when something happens because a lot of times we're just not even paying attention. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're unaware. But Nicholas Gibbs had said in 2017 that he had decoded the manuscript as idiosyncratically abbreviated Latin. That's a quote from Wikipedia right there. Hmm. Even though I think the first place I saw it after someone sent it to us was on Ars Technica, it was initially published in the UK-based The Times Literary Supplement, which is billed as the leading international weekly for literary culture. Gibbs wrote a fairly erudite-sounding article here and indicates that he was first introduced to the Voynich Manuscript in 2002 when he was working as a professional history researcher who was at the time researching some of his famous relatives, he mentions this in the article, mm. including John Dee's wife mm. and the granddaughter of Thomas Ramond, the great English herbalist. And I'm quoting the Times Literary Supplement article there. Now, as we've seen in the past when we explore these mysteries, there are no shortage of folks with theories that they all feel are good or they wouldn't publish them. But it turns out that Mr. Gibbs' hypothesis would be extremely poorly received by the Voynich scholars of the world. And in fact, just two days after Ars Technica published their version of the Times Literary Supplement story, they issued a retraction of sorts. Now, we, of course, have links to both the original piece by Gibbs as well as the original Ars Technica story and the ensuing retraction, which is relatively short. So I just want to read it here because I thought it was pretty fascinating. This article was written by Annalie Newitz and published on September 10th of 2017 at 2.35 in the afternoon. Like you need to know that. Last week, a history researcher and television writer named Nicholas Gibbs published a long article in the Times Literary Supplement about how he'd cracked the code on the mysterious Voynich manuscript. Unfortunately, say experts, his analysis was a mix of stuff we already knew and stuff he couldn't possibly prove. (laughs) As soon as Gibbs' article hit the internet, news about it spread rapidly through social media. We covered it at ours, too. Arousing the skepticism of cipher geeks and scholars alike, as Harvard's Houghton Library curator of early modern books, John Overholt, put it on Twitter, quote, we're not buying this Voynich thing, right? End quote. Medievalist Kate Wiles, an editor at History Today, replied, quote, I've yet to see a medievalist who does. Personally, I object to his interpretation of abbreviations, end quote. The weirdly illustrated 15th century book has been the subject of speculation and conspiracy theories since its discovery in 1912. In his article, Gibbs claimed that he'd figured out the Voynich manuscript was a woman's health manual whose odd script was actually just a bunch of Latin abbreviations. He provided two lines of translation from the text to, quote, prove his point. However, this isn't sitting well with people who actually read medieval Latin. Medieval Academy of America director Lisa Fagan Davis, who will come up more than once in this, told The Atlantic's Sarah Zhang, quote, they're not grammatically correct. It doesn't result in Latin that makes sense. She added, frankly, I'm a little surprised the TLS published it. If they had simply sent it to the Beinecke Library, they would have rebutted it in a heartbeat. Davis noted that a big part of Gibbs' claim rests on the idea the Voynich manuscript once had an index that would provide a key to the abbreviations. Unfortunately, he has no evidence for such an index other than the fact that the book does have a few missing pages. The idea that the book is a medical treatise on women's health, however, might turn out to be correct, but that wasn't Gibbs' discovery. Many scholars and amateur sleuths had already reached that conclusion, using the same evidence that Gibbs did. Essentially, Gibbs rolled together a bunch of already existing scholarship and did a highly speculative translation without even consulting the librarians at the Institute where the book resides. 
Gibbs said in the TLS article that he did his research for an unnamed television network, giving that Gibbs' main claim to fame before this article was a series of books about how to write and sell television screenplays. It seems that his goal in his research was probably to sell a television screenplay of his own. In 2015, Gibbs did an interview where he said that in five years, quote, I would like to think I have a returnable series up and running, end quote. Considering the dubious accuracy of many History Channel documentaries, he might just get his wish. Well, uh, kudos to Ars Technica for publishing the correction slash retraction, because as far as I can tell, that was not done by the Times Literary Supplement, and if it was, it's not linked to in their original article, which it is in Ars Technica to their credit. However, as is often the case in these situations, we find that the correction is a bit snarky towards the original author, Gibbs, when it seems to us that the folks publishing the seemingly thin or erroneous material should have fact-checked it better before publishing it rather than taking jabs at the original author after the fact. That's just my personal opinion, but probably a little defensive because I'm married to a television writer. <laughs> uh, but it seems like a deflection of responsibility to me. But as we always say, no matter who is doing the publishing, us included, be very, very wary of any variation of the expression, mystery solved. Well, the idea, as stated by Lisa Fagan Davis, who, you know, was the person uh, who used to be in charge of all the correspondence and fielding all these questions about the Voynich manuscript when she was a grad student at the Beinecke Library. I like her approach because it's very even keeled in that, like, you know, you shouldn't outright discount a lot of theories coming from outsiders, which was one of the problems with Nicholas Gibbs's statement here and it being accepted is that he is an outsider. He's not part of regular academia. He's not a private researcher who's been in it for 30 years, it seems. You shouldn't shut those people out. And of course, I get it because people who have been studying this for 10, 20, 30 years, it's like they own this thing. They don't need some outsider coming in who's been looking at it for two or three years or much less and spouting some idea, which is a collection of previously known things. It's like what Rene Zanbergen said. None of these ideas are really new and the ones that are here or novel also seem to be wrong. You know, they own this thing. They've put the time in. And one thing that uh, Fagan Davis says that you should take a look at these new ideas and don't discard them outright, but they do have to be vetted before people put this out into the news or online where people are reading it. It really needs to be checked by the experts, but it should also be accepted by the experts initially. Yeah. Hello, everyone. This is Fern Cito. And when I'm not confused by my own accent, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, this brings us to Mystery Solved number two, Gerard Cheshire. This is a second Mystery Solved entry, but will it stand up? Uh, this time, as we've seen in the past, Kelly Hopkinsville comes to mind. We are referencing a peer-reviewed academic journal called Romance Studies, which covers the study of the romance literatures and cultures. It's published in English, French, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese, and was established in 1982. Uh, we have a link to this article. It's in volume 37, 2019, issue number one. It's called The Language and Writing System of MS-408, Voynich Explained. This was written by a biology research assistant at the University of Bristol, and in it, he claimed to have deciphered the manuscript in two weeks using a combination of, quote, lateral thinking and ingenuity, end quote. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we can go into this article and what it posited pretty easily, but you can read it yourself following the link in our show notes as you see fit. But the rebuttal to it by medieval scholars was swift. Listen to these remarks attributed to Dr. Kate Wiles, a medievalist and linguist who we've already quoted once, and senior editor at History Today, as cited from an article in The Guardian regarding Cheshire's paper. The article was published in May of 2019 and was entitled Latin Hebrew Proto-Romance. Question mark. New theory on Voynich manuscript. Research claims to have solved mystery of 15th century text, but others are skeptical. Written by Esther Adley, published on May 15th, 2019. These are some quotes from that. A new theory on the manuscript's meaning happened on a six-month basis at least. There have been at least two in the past year. It takes liberties with how we understand languages to work. He is arguing for a language built of words drawn from lots of places and periods, but together they don't create something that is convincing as a workable language. One of the reasons the Voynich manuscript is so appealing is because of languages like hieroglyphics and Linear B, which were deciphered. But they didn't come out of nowhere. They were decades in the making and drew on lots of different scholarly expertise. You can't just have one person saying, I've cracked it. You've got to have the field, on the whole, agreeing. Cheshire responded to The Guardian with, The journal paper has been blind peer-reviewed and verified by other scholars. That is standard confirmation in the scientific arena. There is no need to persuade anyone, as the solution will be used to study the manuscript by linguists and historians in due course. Furthermore, there is no interpretation, in quotes, involved, as the alphabet, writing system, and language have been fully expounded for others to consistently translate of any word, phrase, or sentence. The Guardian goes on to point out he is now inviting others to expand on his work and translate the manuscript in full. The mysteries of the Voynich manuscript have not been laid to rest quite yet. So mm. that's Cheshire's response to the reaction from the community. And going back to your point, Forrest, about there's definitely, I'm sure, an academic knee-jerk reaction to mm -hmm. anyone that's perceived as a Johnny-come-lately here. But by the same token, they, and there's folks even within these circles are saying we have to be open to new ideas from people who are fresh eyes on the problem. But on the other hand, you also have to respect all the water under the bridge and you have to get it all to work together and there should be a consensus. But we're, we're still looking at multiple claims of it being figured out, which, as they said in this very article, seem to come out every six months. Right. I want to point out there would appear to be a trend over the history of our show of pointing out easily refuted peer-reviewed articles on the topics, legends, and mysteries we cover. And yes, we are doing that. However, we also have to point out that our sample set is based entirely on gotchas. We're only pointing out the ones we come across that don't appear to stand up to peer-reviewed scrutiny. But you as a listener have to keep in mind there are an unknown number of articles, journals, and press releases that make solution-oriented claims that hold water. Our point is we don't have that kind of statistical analysis available, so we can't say what portion of these types of articles are in fact irrefutable and not based on what peers seem to think is thin reasoning. It's also important to note, however, that peer review is clearly not always perfect. What we have shown for sure is that mistakes can be made, and it's one thing for a blog or online journal to publish something without fact-checking it properly, and another for a peer-reviewed journal to do that same thing. Everyone makes mistakes, though, which brings me to my next observation that I think all of our listeners should remember. I make this one on my own behalf because I can't speak for Forrest. He can do that. He's right here. But in the confirmation bias department, I have to acknowledge the fact that my romantic view of the world prefers mysteries to remain unsolved unless they are absolutely categorically and irrefutably solved beyond a shred of doubt. 
So that means that whenever I stumble across a mystery solved publication, I will be predisposed to not believing it. And that brings me to the further observation that as with all mysteries and researchers and academics, and well, pretty much everyone in the world, including me, there are egos involved. And no matter who claims what, true or not, there will always be a backlash to a big claim, whether it's right, wrong, or unsolvable. So listeners, all I ask is that when you're out in the world tackling these mysteries, exercise caution when something says or implies mystery solved, whether it's a press release, a blog, or a journal entry, peer-reviewed paper, or even an entertainment-oriented podcast rooted in cursory research. Be wary. Oh, well said, sir. And on that note, mystery solved. Actually, one small part of it. (laughs) Because something has been found out, dear listener, which you may have wondered if you know anything about the Voynich Manuscript story, what's happened recently, or have read about it, you may have wondered why we didn't mention it at the top of the show. Well, because it's one of the big reveals, and it's revealed in the documentary. But we thought, like, uh, well, let's just let these theories play out, because some of them are pretty interesting. They're not all crazy. They may hold some weight, but there's one simple test that can be done that can shed more light on this and reveal some theories to be more plausible than others, shall we say. Well, In the documentary, as you'll see, and again, I think the testing was actually done in 2009, then the, you know, it was was filmed, and then that came out in 2010, so I believe the actual date of the testing was sometime in 2009, and uh, as you'll see, Greg Hodgins, who is currently an assistant professor of anthropology and an assistant research professor of dendrochronology, and he joined the NSF Arizona Accelerator Mass Spectrometry Laboratory, the AMS facility, in 2002 at the University of Arizona. So he knows what he's doing in this field. Well, Professor Greg Hodgins took several samples of the Voynich Manuscript, which was written on animal skin parchment, so you can age it with the radiocarbon method. And it was kind of refused prior to this because people thought, I think you needed more samples or bigger samples, and nobody really wanted the Voynich manuscript hacked up. But nowadays, you just need a few small slivers of it, which he takes with a razor on the edges, and they're a little uneven anyway, so it's not like you're defacing it, really. But he was able to take some samples. So yeah, prior to 2010... That type of radiocarbon dating required much larger samples, so people weren't on board with it, which would have solved a lot of (laughs) arguments, I would imagine, in the decade prior. Well, four samples were taken from four different pages, and after a few weeks to allow for the testing, the results come in. And here are the results per Hodgins himself saying, quote, the dates are very tightly clustered together. It gives a picture of it being created in a relatively short period of time. So that's interesting. Moreover, because they're so tightly clustered together, it means we can treat it as one object that's been dated four times. And that increases the precision of the measurement. So not four different things from four different eras bound together. You can treat it as one book, essentially. So the mean of those measurements taken and a weighted average give this result. With a 95% confidence, we can say the age of the Voynich Manuscript is 1404 current era to 1438 current era. So the date range in that media means the Voynich Manuscript is likely no older than the year 1404 and no later 
than the year 1438. So somewhere in that range is how old that thing is. And that's a pretty common fact. If you just look at any article, it'll tell you the date. But we thought it was fun to withhold that until we'd heard all the theories, because there you go. This result goes against many of the previous theories we just mentioned of the manuscript's origin and original author, because Roger Bacon lived from 1219 or 1220 to circa 1292, so he was way before the existence of the parchment, so this rules him out. Jacobius Tepanich lived from 1575 to 1622, and therefore it's unlikely he could have used parchment that was around 180 years old, although modern forgers have been known to use very old materials to fool date testing. Leonardo da Vinci was born in 1452, and he died in 1519. So the parchment would have been 24 years old at its oldest dating, or 58 years old at its earliest when Leonardo was 10 years old. Right. Ignore the math on that, folks. What I'm saying is that it was old parchment by the time Leonardo could have gotten it at 10 years old. Edward Kelly lived from 1555 to either 1597 or 1598. So this parchment would have been 117 years old before he was born and at the earliest dating of the manuscript's parchment's age. So there you go. It would have been very old before him. So it's possible we think that some suspects who came 30 to 50 years or 180 years after the parchment's creation uh, could have gotten a hold of some very old parchment or vellum and used it to create the Voynich manuscript, either unknowingly, as a young Leonardo da Vinci might have, you know, just goofing around. It's like, hey, Dad, can I have some, uh, can I have some parchment? Like, yeah, there's an old stack. It's about 50 years old. Have at it. Maybe that's likely, maybe yeah. not. His family had the means uh, for good, decent parchment of the time, and they had the means to buy expensive inks and pigments for him to goof around on. So it's not like he's scrapping around. And if he was trying to hoax something, yeah, you would try to do that. But at that time, he would have been 10 years old. I still maintain, having now had a kid, you can look at the drawings of the child and yeah. probably map out where the kid is going mm -hmm. artistically, I think, by the age of 10. Yeah. And I think it's pretty obvious that whoever drew those people <laughs> in the Voynich yeah. manuscript... <laughs> was yeah. not destined for greatness when it comes to drawing people. So I'm just... <laughs> the bathing ladies. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. So that's well, my biggest about, problem think about with this way. Sherwood's theory, yeah. by the way. so We've seen uh, a lot of artists send a terrific uh, piece of artwork yeah. related to the show and not. And, and, of course, we have seen artwork ourselves. And, you know, sometimes really good illustrators are not that great with lettering and sometimes great letterers are not that great sketchers. And then a lot of times you, you do have a combination where you can uh, letter very well and also sketch very well. So, you know, if you look at the sketches in the Voynich manuscript, it looked like this person was very good at lettering, quite a draftsman, but the sketches leave a little bit to be desired. Uh, then again, you wonder, I don't know, think about this. If you're trying to avoid too much uh, heat, shall we say, from the church, how accurately do you really want to draw those naked ladies and anatomical correctness? First of all, stop saying naked ladies. Secondly, that's actually... A... <laughs> that's the way it's spelled here. I'm sorry. That is just N-E-K-K-I-D. You wrote it. It's possible. I'm not going to say one way or the other. It's just but how it I'm, is here. No, but that's actually a really valid point. I hadn't thought about that. It's a safe way to draw naked ladies. 
Yeah. Let's say bathing ladies, you know, who have crowns on their heads, uh, holding stars with ribbons. It is kind of airy, fairy. It's a little childish, sure. But like I said, if you, well, that wasn't the style of the day either. People weren't getting into really representational figure drawing until uh, centuries later. So that was kind of the style of the day. And as we said earlier, if you were going to create a manuscript of something in, let's say, the 1600s on, the styles had changed. And you it would be unlikely that you would go to an earlier style 100 or 200 years earlier to make a an important document like that. So that seems unlikely. Now, here's something that I mentioned to pay attention to at the top of part one. So you could think that Edward Kelly, you know, he may have gotten very, well, of course, they did not have radiocarbon dating, but it's like, well, he wants to make this look old. He's going to try and sell this to Rudolph II for 600 ducats, or someone did, or that's, you know, again, then that letter that was in the book. That's what was rumored to have been the price that Rudolph II paid for this book, quite a bit. So Kelly's going to get some really old vellum on his hands and use that to make a really good-looking fake. Well, remember the suggestion that we talked about earlier, and that is of finding an independent lab, you know, we told you about earlier, Walter McCrone's company, McCrone Associates. And it's been suggested that they found that the ink, or a lot of the ink, was added not long after the creation of the parchment, although this finding didn't end up, apparently, in their official report. So it's not official, but that's one of the findings that's uh, reportedly happened by Macron Associates, and they also found that the paints used in the manuscript were made of materials that could be expected to be of the manuscript's period in European history. So Walter McCrone, he passed away in 2002, and he was considered a leading expert in the field of microscopy and forensic science. And this is interesting. He was best known for his examinations of the Shroud of Turin and the Vinland map. You heard of those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So seems to be he knows what he's talking about. So if it's, uh, again, that's not official, but the inks used and uh, the paints were not hundreds of years later or 180 years later after the creation of the parchment itself. So that seems to point that the ink and the paint were laid down not long after that parchment was skinned and tanned and and made into paper of the time. So there you go. None of the existing theories of the manuscript's date prior to 2010 were able to or had taken into account its existence in the early 1400s, taken at an average to have been written around 1420. So if you go right in the middle there, let's say 1420 is the date of the Voynich manuscript of its creation. That's one mystery solved with modern science that puts in light the veracity or the likelihood of a lot of these other theories. And so that's been known for a while. Well, there is one detail, however, in the drawings of the manuscript now that in light of that date range of, let's say, 1420, which gives it new meaning. And in the over 200 pages of illustrations that are in the Voynich Manuscript, there is only one realistic representation of some kind of city. And this is a city that is pictured to have towers and turrets on a V-shaped crenulated wall, meaning, uh, you know, those, what I'm talking about, right? The, um, the notches where archers, yeah, exactly. Archers could yeah, shoot out Yeah, swallowtail ramparts. I remember that from the documentary. There you go. Exactly. So these are swallowtail battlements. That's the shape of it, where it's kind of a soft folding in V shape where an archer could uh, fire down arrows onto attackers. 
Well, what's interesting about that is that this was a common defense design later in Europe, but in the early 1400s, they only seem to have existed in northern Italy. And northern Italy was one of the wealthiest and most influential regions during the Renaissance era in the West. And the research prior to this radiocarbon dating, it didn't have the context of a date period. So it made it hard. So people didn't know, is this okay? So it's a fake from the early 1700s to Roger Bacon's time. Maybe that's the 1200s. It's really hard to piece this together when you don't have a solid date. So now that we have that, it makes that drawing as a little anchor point, at least. So at least now, researchers have an origin spot, northern Italy, to look at. And maybe there are some archives there that can be dug into that have some reference to the Voynich Manuscript in that region. It, it really helps. It's still a mystery, of course, and may never be solved. But it's at least one clue, possibly, that we can lock on to because of this little castle and those little figures of the swallowtail battlements there. And I'll just end this little mini section here with a quote from Rene Zanbergen, who again is a really well-respected researcher on the Voynich Manuscript, has studied it for years, and I thought this quote was really apropos and meaningful here. Quote, For the time being, the Voynich Manuscript remains what it has been for the last 600 years. It's a hall of mirrors reflecting each researcher's own imagination without ever allowing him a glimpse into its inner secrets, end quote. And I thought that that's it. It shows you what you want to see if you have a theory. You can find your theory fits in the pages there because it is so vague and so mysterious. You'll find clues that make it fit your theory. And that's maybe all it's ever going to give anybody. This rules out Roger Bacon as well. Yes, once again, Roger Bacon was born around 1219, 1220, and uh, lived to around the year 1292. Right, right, okay. He was on the planet before the animal that gave up its skin was alive. So you can go backwards saying like, okay, maybe you found a stack of 200-year-old parchment and you were able to, uh, you know, make inks. Uh, Say you were going to create a letter, a famous letter by somebody and you studied the handwriting and all that, but you know that it's going to be carbon dated. So what you do is you find a, a book from that era really close, you know, like a blank page that books have in the beginning at the end. You cut that out, use that paper And then maybe you take another one of those sheets and you burn the paper and and you make a carbon ink out of it. Yeah. So when it's tested, it's like it's the date's going to come back. It's like, well, there you go. That's from the date. That's possible. This paper existed when this person wrote this famous letter that this somebody is selling for thousands of dollars. So that's an interesting trick. So you can go backwards. But Roger Bacon, yeah, he, he couldn't have written it. The skin did not exist yet for a long time. That actually uh, reminds me of a film that came out recently called Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, which is, I would say, (laughs) if you haven't seen that, check it out. Uh, Melissa McCarthy in a dramatic role. Yeah, she's terrific. Directed by Yorma Taccone's wife, who we had on for the Patterson-Gimlin series for a little bonus show there. So interesting little cross-section there. Everything's connected, but in a weird way. (laughs) The reason I asked you to reiterate that stuff about Roger Bacon was because I thought it was pretty fascinating that Mary D'Imperio, who wrote that paper that Mm -hmm. we got from the Defense Repository, Wrote in 1978 that she didn't think Bacon was a possibility way back then, way before the carbon dating happened, which I thought Mm -hmm. was pretty impressive. A little background on her. Mm -hmm. She has degrees in comparative philology 
which is comparing languages to see how they may be related, and classics. But she apparently thinks of herself as more of a computer programmer and is noted for creating the TMAC language for computers, also known as hmm. Text Macro Compiler. But I wanted to read mm-hmm. this quote from that aforementioned paper that we referenced earlier, the Voynich Manuscript, An Elegant Enigma, which was uh, written in 1978. Quote, Coming now to the question of Bacon's possible authorship of or connection with the Voynich Manuscript, what, if anything, can we conclude? I feel, although I cannot support my view with any definite evidence, that his authorship is highly unlikely, not only because of the great disparity of dates between Bacon's life in the 13th century and the probable origin of the manuscript in the 15th or 16th century. I base my opinion also on the impression I have gained from a careful study of what is known about his life and his writings, including an attempt, necessarily rapid and inadequate, to sample his own published works in original Latin. I feel in some that Bacon was not a man who would have produced a work such as the Voynich Manuscript even during his periods of imprisonment or persecution. That's from page 50 of her paper, An Elegant Mm. Enigma. She called that in 1978, well before the carbon dating happened. He's a likely candidate, as we said before. He's Dr. Mirabilis. Yes. You know, come on, man. You got a title like that? Like, surely he could produce a book like that. And, you know, it's why a lot of people who really have studied it Previously, I don't blame them for thinking he's a good candidate because Wilfred Voynich himself thought, you know, this guy, yeah, he's got the smarts. Uh, he's dealing in these kinds of esoteric subjects that needed to be coded. He got in trouble with the church before. So uh, who who could have done this other than a really smart person with the means and the, the motive, the knowledge to have done this? It all kind of lines up, and you're going off of very scant information anyway. So I don't blame people, but yeah, that was pretty astute of her to rule that out. Well, now we get to have a very, very special surprise on the show, which we alluded to at the top of the show, and we didn't tell you what it was. And that was that we are having Professor Derek Abbott, who was our guest during the Summerton Man series, back to talk about the Voynich Manuscript. Yeah, I'm not sure if I was aware of his interest even in the Voynich, but it makes sense. I was just a little surprised that his name popped up. But we had talked with him about just trying to decipher the Summerton Man code and the intricacies of that, of course, and in trying to find the right publication, the right printing of Summerton Man's copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. So we knew he was into that. I just not, I didn't put that together until I think I was just doing a search and I saw that like, oh, well, look, this is familiar. The electrical engineering department at the University of Adelaide. Yes. <laughs> I think we know somebody from there. And then it's like, and here's a student, McInnes. And oh, yes, there's his professor, Professor Derek Abbott. And then it all kind of clicked in. It's like, that is so cool. Yeah, it all it all connected back because uh, Professor yeah. Abbott has expertise in computational linguistics. And so we reached out to him and said, hey, you know, do you, you want to come on the show and talk about this? And he said, well, not only be, would I be happy to come on the show, I recently went and saw it in person. So without further ado, uh, we're going to bring back Derek Abbott to talk about his personal experience with the Voynich Manuscript. We would like to welcome an old friend of the show back who has not been on in quite some time. Those of you who have listened to our entire back catalog may be familiar with him. Professor Derek Abbott, thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's a pleasure. So we had reached out to you because in our research for the Voynich Manuscript, we came across a paper written by one of your former students 
that you seem appeared to be involved with regarding an analysis of the manuscript. And I know that you have some experience with linguistics and analysis and particularly coded texts based on the experience that we have just talking to you about your academic background, but also about the Summerton Man case, which we had you on for. Can you tell us a little bit about what your intersection with the Voynich Manuscript has been, and especially most recently, as you were telling me when we reached out to you? Yeah, so I've known about the Voynich Manuscript for, I don't know how many years now, I think it's over 20 years, and I was always intrigued by it. So uh, I think it was about five years or so ago that I started setting it as a project for my students. <laughs> now, that sounds very ambitious. Uh, of course, my goal was never to kind of crack it. My goal was how can we use computational techniques and tools that we have in the field of computational linguistics? And for those of your audience who don't know what computational linguistics is, it's the whole area of study that, say, goes behind apps like uh, Google Translate and stuff like that. So it's a very big, hot area. So I was thinking, you know, as an engineer that deals with these sorts of things, I was thinking, well, maybe we've got some tools that we could throw at the Voynich, not to crack it, but to quantify it get some statistical understanding of the letters and words and their interrelationships, and maybe just be able to, you know, when you've got a whole tangled ball of thread, you just want to find the end, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, what I want your listeners to visualize is that this Voynich manuscript is like somebody's just put a huge tangled ball of thread on your lap and says, okay, figure this out. Look, First thing you've got to do is find an end, find something you can hold on to that you know. And so that's what I think the job of a Voynich cracker is. We, we've, got, we've got to find an end that we can all trust. And once we've found that, we can kind of unravel it. So my objective was not to unravel it, but just to find some anchor point. So I got my students to try various different things on the Voynich one of the things we've done in my group in the past is to examine the uh, book of Hebrews in the, in the Bible because there is a lot of disagreement among scholars. Did St. Paul really write this or not? The canonical belief is that it was St. Paul, but many scholars have debated this over the centuries. So we've done work looking at this sort of problem and computationally. Also in America, I, I've forgotten the name now, um, those uh, letters that your constitution is based on written by Madison and those guys. Uh, what, what were they called again? The Federalist Papers? Uh, ah, the Federalist Papers. That's the word ah, I'm looking for. Is it? Good wow. job, Boy, Forrest. Jackpot on that. I knew you guys would know American history better than I do. <laughs> Boy, that's the only uh, bit, yes. And so we examine the Federalist Papers because, you know, there's a big disagreement between scholars on who wrote some of the Federalist Papers. Some of them are in dispute because it was actually kept secret. And, and these three guys in America did not reveal who wrote which one. There were three of them all together for, for reasons best known to themselves. And I think the story, you should do a whole podcast on the federal <laughs> papers, aren't they? but the, there's an interesting story that in that I think diaries and things were found after these guys had died 
but what they had all written about who wrote what contradicted each other. <laughs> mm. So it's like their memories themselves weren't quite right. And so we've kind of done analyses of these sorts of problems. And one, one of the things we've been really interested in doing both on text and also on DNA sequences as well, because you can think of a DNA sequence as a fancy code or, or a long piece of text. And we using this technique called word recurrence interval. And what that is, I'll just explain that simply. If I have a sentence like say, the cat sat on the mat, there are three words in between the and the. The cat sat on the mat. So cat sat on has a the in front of it and a the after it. So the word recurrence interval for the is three. And so what we do is we go through a whole text and we pick on a word like the and calculate its word recurrence interval every time. It will be three and then might be five and then six and then two and, you know, and then we average that for the whole text and then do that for every single word in the text, find all these word recurrence intervals and then rank them in order and plot a graph. And so this is one of the things we've been doing to compare texts. And so we, we decided, hey, let's try this out on the Voynich. And so um, the problem with the Voynich is, uh, is it's a whole different level because at least with, you know, the Federalist Papers and works in the New Testament of the Bible, which is known to be written in Koine Greek. Uh, so we have a well-defined alphabet and text Whereas the problem with the Voynich is you've got all these characters and you don't even know if they're alphabetical characters. Like, could some of them actually be numbers? Right. Could some of them be other kind of punctuation type characters? So going in with this kind of blind is fraught with problems. So we just made a simplifying assumption and just assumed that all 47 characters in the Voynich are actually real alphabetical characters. That could be a wrong assumption, of course. But using that assumption, just to see what would happen, we ran this word recurrence interval algorithm on it and compared it to a bunch of other languages from with other texts, known texts. We found, you know, the graph of, say, Hebrew and Chinese and more exotic languages were clustered quite high up in the graph and more European languages were and Russian were kind of clustered lower down. And we found that the Voynich fit, fitted with the lower clustering. So it goes more with the European languages than the exotic stuff. So mm -hmm. that was just a kind of ground truthing for us just to see what would happen. But you know, there are hidden assumptions in that. And those assumptions could be right or wrong. But then when you look at the manuscript itself and see the pictures, you get a feeling of, hey, this is European. Yeah, <laughs> it does have that feeling. <laughs> it does yeah. have that feeling. And, um, you know, there's a lot of European culture in there. You can see signs of the zodiac in there. You can see uh, pages where that's drawn out and you can clearly see like a goat and a and other symbols associated with the zodiac, and, and it's divided into 12. So these are things in more uh, European culture. So you kind of expect that. And it was, of course, first found in Italy in 1912. 
and it's written in, in a very European way, like the writing definitely goes from left to right, and you've kind of got a clean margin on the left and a more ragged margin on the right, so you know it's read in a very European way. It's not like up and down like Chinese or something, uh, or, or backwards like Hebrew or, or Arabic. So, yeah, there, there, there are many pointers there that point to it being European. So that's basically what we did with it initially. And so we've done lots of different tests, kind of trying to check out different things. We kind of did uh, letter frequencies of different characters and found that there are a couple of characters in the Voynich that tend to appear at the end of sentences more often than others. And then when we draw the bar charts of their frequencies, uh, there's a huge spike there. They appear a lot. And then if we do the same bar chart for, say, English, and not only include the letters of the alphabet in English, but all the punctuation and stuff like that, there are a couple of punctuation characters like um, full stop. There's a couple that kind of spike very highly in the bar chart. And so it's making us think, hey, maybe these couple of Voynich characters are really punctuation characters. Mm because it, it has this, the same property that you see when you do English and you find these punctuation characters spiking at very high frequency. We can't say for sure, but we can say, hey, maybe. Another maybe we came up with, and I was kind of inspired, you should maybe do a podcast on this too, is the guy that cracked the Mayan code. Do you know about no, that? No, do not. You've got to do it. <laughs> okay. He won the MacArthur Prize for oh, that. Wow. And it was an amazing bit of work. The, the, the weird thing about the whole Mayan code is it's got 800 characters. Oh, my God. And so it's like, what? Normally, alphabets that we know of, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50 characters. And so, like, 800? What's that? It's, like, too big to be a normal, like, European-type alphabet yet too small to be um, a kind of iconographic Chinese type right. thing where uh, icons are unique to different uh, words and stuff. So it's somewhere in the middle and it's like, so what could this be? And so this is one of the first things I wanted to double check about the Voynich, you know, how many characters are there? Is it like in the right ballpark for a European language? And it it comes out about 47, but then we don't know if all of those are really alphabetical characters or some are numbers and punctuation. So the actual alphabet characters are probably somewhere less than 47 for the Voynich. That kind of gives you a feeling it's more like a European thing too. So going back to the Mayan thing with 800, it turned out that what the Mayans were doing is they were using more than one symbol for each letter. In the same way, when we write English and we find it boring <laughs> uh, when uh, we write, say, a novel and, say, if the writer repeated a word too many times on each page, right. we, we frown on that and say, oh, that's, that's not very good writing, but that's boring to repeat that word too many times. The Mayans didn't like it if you repeated the same character more than uh, over and over again. Hey, we've got to make this more interesting. And so they had three or four characters for each letter of the alphabet. And so the poor guy who cracked the Mayan code uh, had to kind of unravel that. And the way he did it was quite interesting. He started off with numbers. He started off with 
some characters that he guessed were dates because there were underneath drawings of what looked like kings lined up. And so he, he, he thought, what would you kind of put underneath each king? It kind of looked like some kind of chronological order. Maybe this is like the year the king reigned or finished his reign or whatever. And so going along that hypothesis, he he figured out that these things were numbers and he worked out what numbers. And that was the end of the ball of the string of the tangled knot. He found an end, the numbers, he cracked that. And then once he got that, he was able to, like a big crossword puzzle, figure out the rest. It was amazing. And so this inspired me. And I thought, yeah, yeah, let's do numbers for the Voynich. So this is the next thing we did. I thought, how the hell do I do that? <laughs> so what I said to my students is, okay, let's go through every page of the Voynich and look at the pictures. And so if I've got a, a page which has got a picture of, say, five ladies on there or a picture with ten plants or whatever, just count those and assign that number to each page. So we went through looking at every diagram and counting all the features in the diagram and calling that a number. And so the Zodiac pages are great because you've got like 12 things in there. So 12 is a good number there and stuff like that. And then what we did is we then said, okay, let's assume that each page might refer to this, these numbers somewhere. You know, some pages may refer to those numbers, some might not in the text. So what we did is we tried to correlate uh, words in each page that had pictures in with numbers, countable items that we found in the pictures. And it was actually a very tricky problem. And we think we've got a correlate for the number one, but that's about it. <laughs> we kind of got weak correlations for two, three, four, five, and six. And then after six, we're kind of stumped. It's like we can't find any sensible numbers for after about six. And I was, I was kind of really hoping the number 12 would come up strongly somewhere because of the zodiac symbols and stuff like that. But um, no such luck yet. So we have to go back and re-examine this work and look at it over and over and see if we've made a mistake. So that's where we're at. Wow. I, I still strongly think that um, numbers may be the way to go. And so maybe people hearing this podcast might be inspired to go look for numbers. Another thing I should mention is I actually saw the Voynich last yeah. year in the flesh. For the what was that like? What's going to the Beinecke Library like? What is that experience like? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. The whole experience of going to Yale was cool yeah. because, uh, you know, they've got a little grave, uh, a little cemetery there mm. and some real famous physicists buried oh, there and wow. stuff like that. Okay. You know, big names that I studied <laughs> when I was a student. So I was going around there taking photos of these. And yeah, so it's just a great experience being at Yale. And, and the Beinecke is a little bit strange because it's a very Spartan looking building from the outside, uh, very unassuming. But then you, when you go in, it's really cool. Uh, I think you may have seen oh, photos yes. of we, it. Yeah, when mm -hmm. we talked about them, and, and I wish we had been. We have not been ourselves, but I really want to go now. So it's very hard to arrange to see the Voynich because it's under very high security, uh, and they just don't let anybody in. But I was lucky because I happened to have a friend who was a professor at Yale ah. who knew the librarians and stuff like that. 
So he put in a good word for me and he, he actually came with me. And I, I brought another guide who works at Yale by the name of um, Graham Wood with me because he f- is a fluent speaker in Arabic. I just wanted him to check if he could see anything more oriental in it or not. And so it was neat having these two guys with me. Uh, and so we were taken into a small little room and the director there at the library led us in, closed the door behind us and he said, there it is. And there was this little thing sitting on the table and he closed the door and left. Wow. And we were kind of surprised. He didn't say, give us a whole load of instructions and say, don't do this or don't do that. He didn't even give us any white gloves. Yeah, that's something I was going to ask. And, and we noticed in a documentary we watched from 2010, people weren't wearing gloves in that either. So there's this, all this very high security and very difficult to get to see it. But once you see it, they shut the door and leave you there and give you no white gloves. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a very strange thing. But I guess uh, they're only putting people in that room that they can really trust. So they knew we would treat this uh, manuscript with absolute respect and we would watch it only carefully by the edges and stuff like that. So they didn't feel they needed to, you know, read us the riot act and (laughs) protect us. And the first thing that strikes you when you first see this small niche is, hey, how small it is, you know, because you see photos of it online and stuff like that. So you don't actually know the real size. And it's actually quite small. It's uh, kind of uh, pocketbook size. However, it's actually quite thick because it's uh, on vellum. So there's a lot of pages, but the actual area of each page is quite small. So it's like a novel size, you know, so it's like a thick novel. But there's not very many pages. There's only about 256 pages. Some scholars believe that there's probably another 30 that have been lost. Uh, So it's not very long. We estimate that it's basically about half the length of, say, the first Harry Potter novel, something like that. (laughs) Right. But it, it looks quite thick simply because the pages are made of vellum. And so looking it up real close was interesting, and we were able to take unrestricted photographs and videos of the book. So if you like, I can send you a couple of snapshots. Yeah, that would be great. Oh, please, yeah. I can send you even a video of me flicking through the pages. Oh, we would love to see that, yeah. Not wearing white gloves, so I'm quite embarrassed about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if they didn't give them to you, I don't know. I guess maybe you're supposed to bring your own. I just felt so guilty touching this thing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So looking up close was quite interesting. You know, I I wanted a chance to see it really close and see the way pen strokes were made firsthand because you can't quite make that out from photos. Another thing which you may or may not be aware of is that there's the Voynich language, which people colloquially call Voynichese. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are some annotations that look kind of Latin stroke Germanic sometimes. And uh, the pages are actually numbered as well in normal English numbering mm-hmm. characters. So it's believed, always being believed by scholars that this extra numbering and these other funny uh, Latin type characters are all later additions, uh, later annotations, not done by the original Voynich uh, writer. But I just wanted to see that for myself. I wanted to see up close and see that the tone of the ink is different 
and the way the strokes are done are different. And I, I feel that I'm satisfied having seen that myself, that, yeah, I agree, these have been done later at some other time. The ink does look quite different. Mm. Also looking it up at it close, you know, it's interesting to see the general care with which things are done in the book. It, it's done with a certain amount of reverence. And, and that's important. I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I once was let into another place that no one is allowed into because I had a friend. <laughs> I had a friend who was a professor at the University of Michigan. And it's so secret that I think most people don't know about this. I didn't even know, but he, he knew the librarian there personally. And so I was let in. And in Michigan, they have in this library a big vault that is locked. And you can go in there with special permission. And it is amazing. It is full of manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts from around, you know, Roman and Greek times. Wow. And they even have some old biblical manuscripts. So I went in there, and this was many years before I saw the Vunich. I did this like 15 years ago. And I went there, and it was an interesting experience because they actually had Bible manuscripts, original ones, and you could see the great care with which these were all written, beautifully written, nicely formed letters, et cetera, et cetera. But what was interesting, and I'd never seen this before, is they had a bunch of everyday stuff from Greek and Roman times, like account books oh. from people who had run a shop or like stuff from schools that were teaching kids of the time and things like that. You know, you, you don't kind of normally get to see that stuff. When you go to museums, you only get to see the important manuscripts. Right. They never show you the crap stuff. <laughs> Looking at the crap stuff was interesting because it was actually really crappy. Yeah. Uh, people didn't take care when they were writing their account books or, you know, writing things of everyday life. Oh, very bad handwriting all over the place. And then you suddenly come see a Bible manuscript. It's like, whoa, this is really super neat. Uh, and done with great reverence. And, and you could see that with the Voynich when I went to the Beinecke. And this is important because, you know, there's questions, you know, about what is it? Is it like something real? Is it a hoax? And, you know, I don't know the answer, but all I can say is that whoever was doing this was doing it with some degree of care, was a very well-educated person. And this wasn't a simple everyday thing. This was obviously something special he was doing. Mm -hmm. uh, if it was a hoax, it was very special hoax. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the hoax hypothesis is, isn't dumb. It's possible. Because in those days, if you had a nice vellum manuscript and it was beautiful, you could sell that and get quite a few gold coins for that in those days to a rich buyer. And uh, you can, might be able to fool a rich buyer if it's just a bunch of gibberish and he thinks it's something special. So there would be motivation to be a hoax. There would also be motivation in those days to write something in a way to keep it secret if you didn't want, say, the Catholic Church to find out you were writing something a bit subversive <laughs> or something that might be deemed to be witchcraft. You don't want to get hung or killed, so you write it in a coded way. 
So the, these are all sensible hypotheses. I haven't been able to rule out one or the other, but if it was either of those, you would write those with reasonable care. Another interesting uh, thing I found when I saw the Voynich close up is looking at the diagrams. I noticed every now and again, I saw what looked like a pinprick in the vellum. And I thought, what's that? Because you, you don't notice that in photographs of it. And then it became obvious, this guy has used a compass. Oh. You know, the old sure. style compass you probably used when you were a kid at school. Yeah. I also, in high school, I took architecture and we had to, we used them in that as, as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you must be about my age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember them well. So uh, I would notice these pinpricks and notice they were ex in the exact center of, say, circles that were drawn in the diagrams. And so this guy was using a compass. So that was interesting. I hadn't realized that before seeing this Voynich in the flesh. So it's a, amazing how much auxiliary information you can pick up just by seeing something. So I would like to go back there again and spend more time. Sure. And uh, maybe try to take some camera equipment with a much higher resolution yeah. than I had and see if I can capture more things that we don't know about the Voynich. So basically that's my Voynich experience. Wow. Does it have a smell? Is there an old musty smell to it? That's a good question. I <laughs> I should have tried that. <laughs> I, I love the smell of old books. That's usually why I asked. But I should do that again next time I go. I didn't think of doing that. <laughs> going to have to sniff it. Going to have yeah. to sniff it. That's part of the one gloves. thing you're not allowed to do. Yeah. <laughs> do you have a personal theory as, you know, most people say it's some kind of medicinal book or an herbal, you know, some kind of uh, scientific notations. Do you have a personal theory on what it has to say what the book really is. Yeah. You know, I've got an open mind about it. I, I, I don't want to close my mind into any particular theory before I know what it really is. But I will say it does have that look of a herbal book to me. Yeah. And there would be motivation to keep that secret from the Catholic Church at the time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I want them accusing you of some kind of craft. But what worries me about that, so there's part of me that wants to believe that theory, but there's part of me that worries me about that theory. And what worries me is that all the scholars that have looked at the pictures of those plants, a lot of them are saying, you know, botanists and stuff, saying, well, we don't know what plants these are. These are just uh, these are out of somebody's dream. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, if this was a real herbarium book, I would want to see real plants there. So that's what worries me. Right. That theory. So maybe that makes me want to swing more towards the hoax. I don't know. Mm. Uh, you know there are some there's some people that are saying this is some form of glossolalia. Yeah, speaking in tongues or some kind of uh, angelic language. Oh, so basically just somebody on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Herbs. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what it could be. <laughs> the best hallucinogens of, uh, of the Middle Ages. High on whatever there was at the time, and this is what came out. Right. <laughs> you know, that's, that's another possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you this. You kind of run into some roadblocks, but what are, what are some of the takeaways that that research produced? Like, what can you, other than that there may be some letter frequencies or appearances that could possibly point to punctuation, what were some of the big takeaways of the research done? I think the big takeaway and the thing I've got to try and untangle next is, you know, 
I don't know what in this Voynich, what are actual letters, what are numbers, what are punctuation. I got to figure out some way how to separate those things first. I got to reduce those before saying too much about it. Because these guys that have, you know, other scholars that have shot ahead and done linguistic type analyses, et cetera, et cetera, have shot straight into that without really ground truthing what it is they're actually looking at. Mm -hmm. As an engineer, I'm trained to kind of sort this kind of stuff out first before jumping ahead. That's prudent always, I think. That's the take home. Okay, that was a treat. I really enjoyed talking to him again, catching back up with him. And yes, he did provide us with an update on the Summerton Man case. And we are going to be posting that over on our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash astonishinglegends in a few days. And it is pretty interesting, folks. So if you're into the Summerton Man case and you're $5 and above patron, you'll be able to hear that over there. Professor Abbott, thank you for coming back on the show. If I didn't say that to you when we were talking, that was really enlightening. And it really is interesting to hear from somebody who's been with the Voynich Manuscript recently. Yeah, because I wonder what that experience is like. I mean, certainly, I'm sure you could find somebody online who has uh, examined it, but we don't get a chance to talk to them and ask them questions directly. So that was really cool. Plus, I love really old books. So that's why I asked him about, does it have a smell to it? Yes. (laughs) I mean, I love old book paper. And I guess, yes, now there's some bacteria that's involved in some books. So maybe you shouldn't do that. Yeah. And exciting old diseases, which we'll be talking about in a few minutes, by the way. Library log. (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those things when you hold it, just I, I Without guess gloves, a, mind you. Yeah, well, you know what? I was going to say that. I didn't, I didn't want to interrupt him because I was amazed too at that. But apparently, and I'm going to leave it to the experts at the Beinecke and other rare book collection librarians that some manuscripts don't need to have gloves. Because I, we also posted this. I watched it myself. It's the procedure on yeah. how to go and check out manuals and different old texts from the Beinecke. And it's an instructional video. It's about three minutes long produced by the Beinecke, and they tell you what to do. One thing that they do want you to do is, as as you'll see, is that there's these foam sponge supports, because you don't want the book laying flat or, heaven forbid, laid on it so then the back, the spine of it breaks, yeah. because those are very old and brittle. So you, you want them in a V-shape, and they'll tell you how to use two of them if the book's really big. But yeah, as far as fingerprints, it doesn't seem to matter. I yeah. think, on, on some of these. So I was a little surprised myself, but yeah, I don't, I've watched videos now of people handling them and no one's wearing gloves. And I, I've seen that with other rare things. But then again, I've seen other, uh, I think if there's a case of DNA, certainly they don't want you to, like the Jack the Ripper letters. I think you have to wear gloves for those. Yeah. Plus, ugh, what just who knows what's on them. But <laughs> yeah, but when you hold something like that, the Voynich, just the mystery, you're also holding the mystery. Your eyes are looking at the same pages that some mysterious author looked at as well. And think about all the very brilliant people that have also gazed upon those pages in the same sense of mystery and awe and wonder. Wow, that's extremely well put. I have nothing to add to that. It's time to move towards the last part of part two of our show here. 
So before we get into our thoughts and conclusions on it, we did want to talk about a couple of emails that came in this week. One was we got a note about how Halon fire suppression <laughs> systems work. It turns out there's a bunch of myths about them. Um, among the myths, one is that Halon systems are used in kitchens, which I think I had said in our uh, last episode. And also we joked about them sucking all the oxygen out of the room during a fire, which to an extent happens, but it turns out it's all much more complicated than that and maybe not as dangerous as we made it out to be. So if you're interested in how that stuff really works, you can see the email we got from listener Greg, who is a senior fire technician. That email is in our show notes, and it's, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, he explains it in much more detail there. One other quick note, we also heard from none other than the Yale University Press this week, and this is a fun one, folks. This email came from one of the assistant marketing managers, uh, Travis Kimball over there. He wrote the following to us. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. The Skinwalker Ranch arc was fascinating, and I'm beyond excited to see that you've chosen to tackle the Voynich Manuscript in your next few episodes. I work for Yale University Press, and as you are already aware, we have published a high-quality facsimile production of the manuscript. With the vast speculation surrounding it, people will find our book to be an authoritative source on what is actually known about this mysterious manuscript. So he and I exchanged several emails. This was all today, just a few hours before we were getting together to uh, record this wrap-up on the series. And he went on to offer us five copies of their amazing edition of the book to give away to our listeners. Here's a description of it. The Voynich Manuscript from Yale University Press is the first authorized copy of this mysterious, much-speculated-upon, one-of-a-kind, centuries-old puzzle. This facsimile was produced from new photographs of the entire original manuscript and includes recreations of the elaborate folding sections. The essays that accompany the manuscript explain what we have learned about this work from alchemical, cryptographic, forensic, and historical perspectives, but they provide few definitive answers. Instead, as New York Times bestselling author Deborah Harkness says in her introduction, the book, quote, invites the reader to join us at the heart of the mystery, end quote. So uh, this just happened a few hours. We haven't quite figured out the logistics on the giveaway yet, but our esteemed head of research and producer, Tess Feifel, is on it. So keep your eyes on our social media feeds because it will no doubt be playing out on one of those platforms. Remember, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you can't wait for us to get our act together on the giveaway, you can get it from Yale University Press right now online at YaleBooks.com. All right. Well, what do we think? Not that anybody out there really cares, but <laughs> we might as well weigh in. This is our platform. We get to do that. Yeah, even my mom doesn't listen to the show anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she started off, well, that's that's good. My dad just started. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, he's listening to a few here and there. But yeah. the idea here is that what's in the manuscript itself is it's not that mysterious in that we know or everybody thinks there's a consensus that it has to do with plants and astrology. and some movement of the stars. Some of the things with the people, the rituals that are going on are kind of bizarre, but those are probably symbolic. It's the naked bathing ladies somehow being connected to tubes. You know, maybe that has something to do with women's health and fertility or something to do with prenatal medicine even. So those things aren't that far out. It's just weirdly presented. And of course, the code of the text is that in itself is very strange. So those combined, the words and the pictures make for a very just mysterious thing that has captivated a lot of people's imaginations and they, they really want to know what it's about. But to me, there might be something magical about it, but you won't know that till you can read the text and see what the pictures are actually referring to and try to make sense of it. So what could this be? Then you look at the logic behind it of... 
Why is it laid out like this? Why is it presented in this manner? Surely some of these things could have gotten somebody in trouble with the church. However, it turns out there are some thoughts by various researchers and authors that the church may have not had a problem with some of these researchers from the Middle Ages and their theories. Was stuff like this actually banned by the church? Well, I personally believe, I think that's a consensus, that some of these guys did do some jail time, and they did get into a little bit of trouble. Well, that's a known fact, yeah. I will argue that, uh, yeah, it was not looked upon well, and why, why stir the pot if you don't have to? So... If you can encode it, if you figured out a way to do that, or this is some way that, that was previously known to you, why not put it in code? But what is this thing actually? What does this book represent? Well, it could be somebody's personal note journal on herbal medicine and astrology, but it wasn't meant to be read or deciphered by others other than the author, or maybe a select person or small group of very trusted people, somebody in the know, a small cabal of physicians, perhaps mixologists or alchemists. Or the Voynich manuscript could really be some kind of personal fantasy book or imagined botanical notes, either totally imagined or in combination with real botanical studies and findings. And it could have been written down in a made-up language known only to the author. Or is it a written form of a verbal-only language, like the language of the birds, which supposedly was used among ancient alchemists between themselves? again, as a way to keep their knowledge secret. And I think the sounds were like whistling vocalizations, which to those hearing it sounded like birds chirping and whistling. And something like that is barely hanging on to this day in existence. There is a very endangered whistling language called Cifria, I believe, spoken by the aging population of a mountainous village called Antia on the Greek island of Avia. That was a lot of complex pronunciations, but you did very good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now I've totally lost my thread. Yeah, sorry about but that. That's okay. So actually, though, it's technically not a language as linguists refer to it as a speech registrar, uh, like shouting or whispering. Uh, there are only 18 people left that can whistle or speak it, or whistle speak it. But back to the idea that it's some kind of personal code or made-up language. It reminded me, again, of a case we came across while researching the code used by the Summerton Man. And I've referred to this before, because I think it, it's a good parallel story or something you maybe can draw upon, the ideas here. With the case of the Summerton Man, he had written down a code, of some kind of code of his own devising, or something that was uh, not totally known to cryptologists, but he had written down this code in his own copy of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And to crack the code, it was important for Professor Derek Abbott to obtain a copy of the Rubaiyat that was from the same printing. So, you know, if there was a code key arrangement, like between a sender and a recipient, you had to know that you were looking at the same words and letters in the same arrangement on the page as what the Summerton man was using. So that's why it was so cool to get uh, Professor Derek Abbott back in on an unrelated topic, but also having to deal with codes. And it's just, I guess, serendipitous that uh, he's been looking into this as well, the Voynich Manuscript and the Summerton Man Code. Yeah. But back to the case we stumbled upon, Ricky McCormick was a 41-year-old man who was found murdered on June 30th, 1999, in a field in St. Charles County, Missouri. And in his pockets, police found two handwritten notes with a code on it that the FBI's Cryptanalysis and Racketeering Records Unit, the CRRU, and the American Cryptogram Association could not decipher, and it remains one of the CRRU's top unsolved cases. Now, Ricky McCormick was a high school dropout with a troubled past and present, but according to McCormick's family members, Ricky was illiterate and couldn't write anything but his name, except he'd used encrypted notes since childhood. 
but only for himself to read. No other family members could ever read his notes. But in a seeming contradiction, family members also said they never knew him to write in code, but only, quote, sometimes jotted down nonsense he called writing. And they didn't think that he had a capacity to write in a code he devised himself. Ricky's mother, Frankie Sparks, said the only thing he could write was his name, and that he didn't write in code. Ricky's father, Charles McCormick, said Ricky, quote, couldn't spell anything, just scribble, end quote. And interestingly, the police had told the family of the other items in Ricky's pockets, but they never told them about the coded notes until they learned about it from a local news broadcast 12 years after his death. I think they were trying to work on it, and it just <laughs> they never got around. They couldn't do it. They couldn't crack the code because it was just Ricky's, apparently. Or the other scenario is that somebody put that in his pocket to, I don't know, you know, foil them, get them off the trail, create a diversion of something made up that it just probably took up some time. But I don't believe his murder was ever solved. But that's the deal with this. It's just a made-up language or notes. And I think this is why the CRRU can't crack it. Maybe like the Voynich, as people have been suggesting. It's just a written personal form of his own thoughts that made sense only to him, if they made any sense at all. So I wonder if the Voynich manuscript was written in maybe in some kind of invented language known only to the author since the letters and sentences of a, you know, sort of Voynichese seem to have some kind of order to it, or a recurring pattern, could it be a mutation from a known language, or just a personal documentation of the thoughts and ideas of the author? So, is no one else going to get this? And, you know, and if it's somebody's personal thoughts, a lot of times you, you can read in English other people's notes and don't make sense. I often leave stuff on post-it notes that I don't know what mean later. Since we started this show, I have notebooks filled with things. I go back and I look at it and be like, I don't even, <laughs> I have no idea what this means. You can read it, but does it make sense? Yeah, but to be fair, it's not a 400-page, like, highly detailed artistic piece of work either. It's just exactly. a scribble. There is a tremendous amount of intent behind this, regardless of what you think of the uh, the author or the purpose. But of course, you know, the Voynich Manuscript isn't the only old, mysterious, and undecipherable book that's been found, and there's a popular mysterious book that's actually fairly recently been produced. So I found an interesting article called Five of the Most Baffling Books Ever Written on BigThink.com with the subtitle, These Are Some of the Strangest, Most Mysterious Books Ever Written. And the article's by Paul Ratner, dated 19th of June, 2016. And no, he did not write all the mysterious books, too. So he just wrote <laughs> the article. That would be awesome. Hey, but of course it lists the Voynich Manuscript as uh, mysterious item number one. But there are four other interesting specimens in the article, so I thought it would be worthwhile to mention those. One old candidate is called the Rohans Codex, if I'm saying the Hungarian correctly. It, too, is an old-looking illuminated manuscript with 448 pages of text of nearly 200 symbols and illustrations handwritten in an unknown writing system and language, which showed up in Hungary in the early 1800s. The illustrations in this codex show things like military battles and religious symbolism that appear influenced by Christianity, but also Islam and maybe even Hinduism. And it's also been studied in depth by academics and amateurs with no widely acceptable deciphering. But it seems most Hungarian scholars believe the Rohans Codex is a hoax. The book's origin and the meaning of the text and illustrations have been investigated by many scholars and amateurs with no definitive conclusion, although many Hungarian scholars believe that it is an 18th century hoax. So Karoli Zabo, a Hungarian historian, came to the conclusion in 1866 that a Transylvanian Hungarian antiquarian by the name of 
Shamuel Literati Nemesh. That's an amazing name. Also, I think if you're going to be an antiquarian, having literati in theirs is pretty sweet. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. That's that was self-appointed or not. <laughs> yeah. But this guy was no slouch, no uh, amateur deadbeat. He was also co-founder of the National Zecheni Library in Budapest. And it's believed that he was the one who fabricated the hoax, at least by Zabo. Nemesh was known to have created several historical forgeries, mostly in the 1830s, which had fooled some of the most well-respected Hungarian scholars of the time period. Huh. So you can see why that, uh, yeah, kind of suspicion pointed to him. Yeah. Even though there's no direct evidence connecting the Rohans to Nemesh, most Hungarian scholars believe it was hoaxed by him. So that's one mysterious codex that shares some similarity with the Voynich, although more widely thought to be a fake. Right, a little bit easier to figure out in a way. Well, there's more of a tie to it. Yeah, it's mysterious. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting, but there's more of a lead on it, which we do not have with the Voynich. Right. You let me know if you've heard these, Scott. Uh, some other old and bizarre texts that were mentioned in the article. Uh, one is the Smithfield Decretals, which is a papal document giving an authoritative decision on a point of canon law and this was issued by Pope Gregory IX in the 13th century. Now, the text doesn't appear to be in code. I, would, I think it's just Latin. But the really strange illustrations in it have made scholars question their purpose because some scenes in the document show human-sized violent rabbits, a unicorn fighting bears, a man suckling a male lion, another man chopping off his own leg with an axe, a robed monk that looks like Yoda, and other very strange creatures. If you've not seen the Yoda one, Scott, I, I highly recommend No, it. I saw, you know, I didn't see any of this until you <laughs> mentioned this article, frankly. Yeah. But that Yoda dude looks just like Yoda, which does beg the question, uh -huh. which uh -huh. came first. Well, we know this one came first, but... Right. Lucas but, homage, maybe? Yeah, did Lucas see that guy and say, oh, that's Yoda right there. That's got to be. And also, the there are killer rabbits, which is a Monty Python thing. But, I mean, those <laughs> rabbits, they're vicious. Yeah, there's one uh, illustrated scene where... I think a rabbit is riding a dog and they're lancing, they're jousting each other. Uh, yeah. There's another rabbit or there's another animal. It's just what a mishmash. But you know what's important about this and how it connects to Voynich? It's like, are they representations of something else? Is, is there a code in the imagery? Why yeah. is it a rabbit? Why is it Yoda? Well, exactly. What's the message? You can look at it as like, well, that's just their sense of humor back then. And, and maybe there was some of it to liven up this thing. But this is a, it's an official church document. I mean, it's, it's a ruling on canonical law. So yeah. it must be making some kind of point other than it's just comics you know, within, interspersed within the text. But what's the symbolism here? Because it's very odd and stylized. But I think that's what baffles scholars is that it doesn't seem to fit with other things of the era. So why the sense of humor with this stuff? Because again, these aren't scribbles. Somebody is taking a lot of time, some monk and probably several if they're making copies to produce this thing. So that does not point to a guy making a fantasy document in his shack, <laughs> in his... <laughs> In his hovel there. Uh, here's another one that has a direct connection to the Voynich. Uh, another weird book mentioned is called the Book of Soiga, discovered by our old pal, John D. in 1551. The Book of Soiga seems to be a 16th century book on magic, which was lost for hundreds of years until it was found in the archives of the British Library in 1994 by a scholar. The Codex had almost 200 pages appearing to list incantations and practices for magic, summoning demons, and other notes on astrology. And the article says that D had a medium try to start up a conversation with the archangel Uriel in order to derive meaning from the book. 
Do you think this medium could be D's old pal Edward Kelly? Yeah, because that that article didn't say, but it was the first thing I thought is it had to be it had to be Ed Kelly. I'm get he was the guy who was around. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for all those yeah, years and specifically it's spoke gotta to be angels. him again. Man, I would just love to hang out with those guys. We shall swap wives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one, I mean, it's this one's. Uh, well, listen to this. I mean, some of the book is written in Latin. And it can be translated. So you have a link there to understandability. But there are also over 40,000 letters that are written down in 36 tables that seem to be some kind of code. So mm -hmm. that's the important stuff that not everyone's meant to know. But the book also apparently has a curse. If you decipher the code, not only will you gain its magical secrets and powers, but you will die within two and a half years. So hopefully solving the Voynich manuscript doesn't have the same after effect, but I don't get the feeling it's all that nefarious, the Voynich. No, it doesn't convey that. And, you know, the other thing that I love about this book of Soiga story also yeah. is that it's one of those things that was lost, but in reality was just uncategorized in a collection. Oh, that like, happens that, all the time. I know, it's just yeah. crazy. It's like, lost for hundreds of... Like, to me, lost is like, okay, it's in a cave or somebody <laughs> stole it. You know, well, it's, it's on the burned, black market. Yes, it's in the... some billionaire's foyer. Right. But the, uh, but the reality is it was, it was here all along. We just didn't know that it was here. Isn't that amazing, though, <laughs> that just to think that uh, they have it in a collection, but there are so many volumes. The right person, the right scholar, the right researcher just hadn't gotten to it yet. And it took all that time. Yeah. Just imagine what is left to be discovered in there. And that's the thought that we kind of ended on, I think, around part one, that uh, now that we may know a location for the Voynich, for its creation, somewhere in northern Italy during the Renaissance, yeah. maybe there are other texts that connect to it that just mention it, maybe. Yeah, you could find something in collections that you know are traced back to that area that have some common ground, whether it's uh, similar text or imagery. Yeah, exactly. So so there's yeah. a connection out there. I just uh, maybe has yet to be found and it might crack this whole thing. Imagine what we'll know then. Maybe the best place to be looking for a solution is actually instead of look continuing to look at the manuscript itself, looking in the place that it came from at other manuscripts yeah. and other papers from the time period. There's a thread there that's beginning to form that you can maybe start to tug at. So that's exciting. That's more in line with the, 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 the dangerously dark romantic notion of maybe what the Voynich was and that the book of Soigeb, like, boy, if you could crack that whole thing, yeah, it might kill you in a two and a half years, but in two and a half years, you could summon all kinds of delightful stuff for yourself, all kinds of earthly delights that send you straight to hell after you've enjoyed them. <laughs> but, but I think that's the idea, though, with that thing is that, yeah, that's On the plus side, magic. you'll know everyone when you get there. <laughs> you'll love the, yeah, they're probably listed in the book and yeah. uh, all the demons you've, you've summoned. Yeah. How'd you get this number? Yeah. <laughs> What's the Wi-Fi code here? <laughs> so, but that's the point of that book is that it is dark and mysterious and dangerous and it's got its own mythos and, and legend that goes with it. And that's the purpose of the book of Soiga. And we still don't completely know the purpose for the Voynich. Well, a modern version of a mysterious book that you can actually buy, published, and one that makes me think about that fantasy book angle is called the Codex Seraphinianus. And originally published in 1981, the 360-page book was created by Italian artist and designer Luigi Serafini. And in a talk in 2009 at Oxford University, Serafini said the ornately styled text had no real meaning, which he produced in a method that's like the spirit communication of automatic writing. And if you don't know what that is, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people do, but if you don't know what that is, 
the receiver, let's say, of the message kind of goes into a trance or a meditative state. You'll see people like scratching or scribbling very fast or or just moving the pencil or pen quickly, and then sheets are, are moved out of the way that they filled up and new ones are provided. And within that, supposedly there is a spirit message that's allowed to come through the person's hand. So yeah, debunkers the hate it. The Amazing Randy <laughs> hates um, automatic, they hate automatic writing. They're like, this is bogus. Yeah, because you're just rapidly scribbling down words. So how do you disprove that, that it's not coming, you know, from the spirit realm? It's supposed to be like a, a, a form of channeling, right? Yeah. It's not yeah. like scratches that appear on your back that spell out something. That's a little harder to fake. Yeah, and whatever, you can say what you want about the Codex Seraphinianus, but it does not look, I mean, some parts of it look like that, but it right. it's a lot better organized than most automatic writing, which usually looks like somebody trying to draw a clown wig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's very artistically done because uh, Luigi Serafini is a really good artist, which is his trade. So it, it, of course, it's going to look pretty cool and, and well thought out. And the text is, it's ornate. But what I really like about his purpose here in creating the book was the thought behind it. And he said he was trying to recreate a feeling about looking at the pages of a real encyclopedia as a child. Now, although he couldn't read yet, the contents of an encyclopedia to him looked mysterious, and he knew it all meant something. He just didn't know what at the time. So yeah. remember that that sense of wonder and awe when you're, you were really little, if you can remember that far back? It's like, this big book is important, and there's 21 of them, and they they smell funny, and, and I like looking at the pictures, but it, it must mean something. It must be important, but I just, I don't know what it is. Well, though. and I think he really did that, because when you think about that, you only have that sense of awe when you're a child, and you have, there's so much about the world you don't know, and then you see these illustrations of the highest end of understanding, and it's allowing you to visualize something that you just can't even conceive of yet. And as an adult, there's no way you're going to get there unless somebody does something like what Serafini did yeah. and makes it out of nonsense. Because to you as a child, it was nonsense. And it, like, I think it really totally captures it. I'm completely enamored with this book. I'm already looking oh. for a first edition of it. There's a new version out, I guess. You, you know, the other thing it suddenly reminded me of was in the, I think it was the world books. There were some pages, some of the anatomical pages that had the uh, mm -hmm. the clear overlays. That you could like overlay yeah. the nervous system and then peel that. It's just the coolest stuff. But anyway. Yeah. Well, uh, that, no, that's great. I, I just have to get you another Christmas present now. <laughs> so thanks for ruining that. It just makes a really cool gift. There's a bunch of different printings and versions. You'll see it listed or printed in the article I just mentioned as Codex Seraphinus. But we did a thorough check, and it seems to be Codex Seraphinianus. So if you see that, uh, just note that that seems to be a typo. I'm not sure why it was printed in the Big Think article like that, but I'm sure there's a, a good reason for it, or just slip past them. But it's Codex I Seraphinianus. Think, I think it's a typo. Well, so there you go. How how do we know that the <laughs> Voynich has any... <laughs> <laughs> has been spell-checked or has any errors in it. Uh, right. You're, you're taking the word for it. Uh, same thing with this Codex Seraphinianus. Uh, you know, but the freaky and captivating illustrations, I mean, they're quite bizarre, but they're really alluring in a strange way. So I, I totally get what you're saying here. Yeah. It would make a great coffee table book for hipsters. And yes, you can still buy a copy, so we'll have a link to it pointing you to Amazon. And it's not cheap, but it's not really, really expensive for a big, uh, fantastical book like that. What the drawings show are fantastical, otherworldly, or I guess other dimensional or extra dimensional plants, animals, bizarre, complicated machinery, foods. There's one disturbing scene which shows some types of alien beings, which I think are very creatively designed, not your usual greys or reptiles or 
bugs. They seem to be changing out the flesh on human skeletons. And then the people still alive are examining their new shells, their mm. new selves. So it's just weird stuff like that. And uh, it's not really for kids. I think there are some more adult-themed illustrations, but uh, as a kid, I certainly would have tried to get my hands on a copy and stared at it for hours. <laughs> it just gives me the feeling of when I saw the 1973 French animated sci-fi fantasy film Fantastic Planet hmm. as a kid. Did you, did you ever see that? I've never even heard of that. It's really iconically Oh, maybe it's one of those bizarre. things that I'll, I've seen, but I don't know it. I'm going to write that down. Right let, me, let me put it this way. If you walk into a hipster bar that has a big TV screen, yeah. it's a good chance you'll see it playing in it's the background. It's playing in the background, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Or <laughs> clips of it will be playing at a rave. It's, yeah. that, it's that freaky. Yeah. My dad took me to a double feature when I was a kid. It was, it was Fantastic Planet with Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Oh. And both just kind of blew me away. I mean, it's... Wizards was a lot more comforting. It was a lot more what I recognized in a, in a kind of a fantasy... Yeah, at uh, least I've fun, heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, Middle <laughs> Earth world. Uh, but man, Fantastic Planet is like, what is this? This is a horrible version of, uh, of a world because the aliens are giant. Humans are little tiny cavemen-like people that uh, are the pets of the giant aliens that are yeah. blue. And it just, it stuck with me always. And I want to know more about it. So I totally get uh, Serafini's idea with this and that he wanted to create a, a book that uh, inspired that kind of wonder that he found uh, elsewhere. So I wonder if the Voynich Manuscript might be some kind of 15th century fantasy book of its day. But if it was, I think it would have to be a very personal one, it seems. Uh, not for distribution, not like the Codex Serafinianus is. But, you know what, possibly made for a one-time sale to a wealthy person, someone who was interested in secret herbalism and astronomy. Good old reading I could see that two. happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I could see <laughs> that happening. And unlike the Codex Serafinianus, which is very well illustrated with much artistic skill, as I said, the Voynich seems to me to be, it's nicely lettered, but the drawings themselves are not that sophisticated. Now, don't get me wrong, it took some skill and and, you know, time to detail all the imagery there and put it all together graphically and get it down on vellum. But it's not the best artistry I've ever seen with other herbals from uh, maybe the 1500s and 1600s. And certainly, as we said before, the styles had changed. And the drawings get pretty good, in my opinion, at least uh, very strong graphically. Like, you could put that on a hipster t-shirt. You keep bringing up the hipsters. Because they're the people that uh, that keep this stuff alive. I'll, I'll you know. <laughs> but what I was saying is that, you know, other books from the era, yeah, they look much better drawn to me and with more skill in representing the plants and the people. So that does make me wonder again, was it just made for the author who had more talent in penmanship and less with the artwork? Was it just their own personal journal that they wanted to keep it coded, but it wasn't meant for others to ever crack? And then there's the hypothesis that others have had, and one I'm willing to entertain, is the idea that the author may have had some form of a mental disorder, like schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. And that's why nothing makes much sense to anyone but the author. And like, you know, a personal journal, it, it could be just your own thoughts and how you transpose them. And if you have something like schizophrenia... That may not make sense to others just looking at it, but it might make some sense to yourself. So those with the condition have been known to produce volumes of detailed writing and drawings, but which look mostly meaningless, like I said, to uh, the larger audience here. Now, I once saw an art exhibition with works done by people with mental conditions like schizophrenia, things like that. And one gentleman had even written a book with around 10,000 pages just yeah. page after page. And I think he did this while he was institutionalized, and so he had a lot of time. 
on his hands to do this. But, you know, my thought on this, though, is the works themselves seem to be less cohesive, less organized, uh, a little bit rambling and, and somewhat scattered, as you, as you might expect. So who knows if the Weinish's text is rambling or if it even makes sense or if it could be deciphered. But overall, it seems to me to be more concise and calculated, even if the drawings are strange and nonsensical to our own world. So in the end here, I think whoever wrote the Voynich manuscript had an intricate mind, reliable, consistent, and talented enough to get the ideas down, and, but they had clear ideas about what they wanted to document, even if it was fantastical ideas from both reality and their imagination, or some obscure legend. It seems very purposeful. So if it could be deciphered one day, my hope would be that it could hold unknown medical or pharmaceutical secrets that would be useful today, like some medieval cures are being re-examined for solutions to our worrying evolution of deadly bacteria and viruses. Have you heard of Bald's Leech Book? Uh, no, I have not. Well, it's another book with medical information in it, believed to be written sometime in the 10th century, so the 900s, so much older than the Voynich. And it may be one of the earliest medical textbooks. Now, there's an article on it on History.com about Bald's Leech Book and how it's being looked at by modern scientists now to find possibly some cures that have been overlooked or some combination of herbals or natural things that people back in the 900s or the 800s were using for cures. And so remember we talked about this, I think, in part one, like, uh, well, what could you do with plants and animals back then? Well... In the book, what's being studied now by scientists is that there was a cure that was for eye infections, like conjunctivitis. And some of the ingredients for this one particular recipe used a portion of garlic, onion, or leek, wine, and ox gall, which is bile taken from a cow's stomach, mm. brewed in a brass vessel, meant to be set aside for like nine days, and then you strain it through a cloth. And uh -huh. then I, I think uh, you use whatever's left over. Now, how they found out this combination of stuff works... I'll never know. Well, Maybe you know it's what? explained in it. I think I've found a way for us to make a fortune next year, just a little <laughs> extra income. I think yeah, we you the, get the cow bile. No, okay. Right. We go to the Mothman <laughs> Festival ah. and we set up a booth where we sell this stuff for people who encounter the Mothman, then they, they can use it to treat their conjunctivitis, this 900 year old ah. remedy. Very nice. Yeah. With no claims that this will do anything, and please don't put it in your eye. Don't actually um, put it in your eyeball. Yeah. <laughs> but it's cool to have, for a hipster to have on their shelf. Oh, here we go again. This recipe from the 800s seems to have very real medicinal value to it, because uh, they did a study, and what they did was uh, there was a medievalist who translated it, because it's an old English, of course, being from the ninth century, and took that and gave it to microbiologists and this Dr. Christina Lee, who is an Anglo-Saxon expert from the University of Nottingham, translated this recipe and then gave it to that university's microbiology department to see if uh, this thing could actually work. Now, what they say is that, it, you know, the results might, of course, be different out in the real world. But in the lab, what they did was they, they went through the exact instructions and left it stand for nine days, strained it through a cloth, and then they tested what was left over. And uh, they used it as a control solution against large cultures of MRSA, M-R-S-A. You've heard of that one? Oh, yeah. And it's very hard to get rid of and becoming maybe more and more impossible because it's adapting itself to all of our known antibiotics. So yeah. that's what's scary. And of course, they didn't have much hope that this thing would do anything. But what they noticed is that there was a small amount of antibiotic activity with this ninth century medicine. 
what's interesting is that none of the ingredients themselves by themselves had any effect. But when you combine them all, the recipe killed up to 90% of the MRSA bacteria. Isn't wow. that freaky? Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That's right. Really and, cool. and hopeful. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe there's some lost knowledge yeah. that they have that, you know, that was passed down to them for three, four hundred years ago. And it's just lost a day. And we're we're doing really well with our pharmaceuticals, but they have a lot of side effects. And, you know, look, people say like, well, I'm trying to get away from chemicals. Like chemicals make up our world. They're in everything. You know, chemicals make up your food. Yeah. And pharmaceuticals do help us out. And herbals, if not used properly, I think can have some negative side effects, certainly, depending on the person. And we do look to Western medicine more as a cure, but maybe there's something in there. Maybe there's something in the Voynich manuscript, if it can be translated, that might be something miraculous. Well, I think all those points are super valid. And I love the example with the MRSA. That's really fascinating and amazing. And I, I guess something, I think I was making a joke or something in part one about uh, herbalism. And we've since received about 50 emails. People tell me it works. It's great. I'm like, I'm not <laughs> well, against it. Hey, look, I'm not against it. I don't know no, what no, I no. said. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'll put it this way. Look, I'm all for natural cures. I, I don't uh, generally like taking... Uh, heavy-duty pharmaceuticals. And, and fortunately, knock on wood, I, I haven't had to really take a lot of medication in my life. But, you know, I try not to. I, it doesn't occur to me. And I'd rather go to a, a more natural uh, solution. So when I try stuff like that, it's like, I, I will say the effect, and maybe it's just the calluses that are that are on my inside, the darkness and the blackness. It doesn't have much effect on me. And, yeah. And then we find out stuff, the effectiveness of it and the reports. It's like one week, it's good to drink coffee. Next week, no, it's not. It'll kill you. And the next <laughs> week, like, no, you should have six cups a day at least. Otherwise, you're going to die, you know, at, at 60. Just start drinking coffee. And then, you, of course, it's just back and forth. And, and it's a big money-making, uh, you know, arena. You know, and then we hear about stuff like echinacea. It turns out, I guess, the reports is that it, it doesn't have much effect. Yeah. If any. And maybe it's just a placebo effect, and uh, if that's going to help me, fine, and it doesn't really hurt me, I will try it. But you hear a lot of stuff, and it turns out not to be true, and you have to know what you're doing. And we had a listener write in to us, a uh, really uh, good email about, it's a very long tradition, and their comment was about the manuscript, the Voynich manuscript. It would have to be really exact, because you don't want to play around with this. Yeah. If it is a coded thing, like, this thing's got to be on the money, the amounts and the procedures have to be exact, pretty spot on, or it's not going to work, or yeah, you're, you're going to harm somebody. So yeah, you have to remember that herbals are the root of our modern day pharmaceuticals. Pun intended. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Well, you covered a lot of things that I agree with Good. when it comes to the Voynich Manuscript. I had a few additional observations. One is something that we've brought up before just on other episodes, not even about the manuscript, about other topics. And that's how we've seen a lot of researchers, they put ideas out there for solutions to mysteries, but a lot of them can't seem to help but bring a little too much of their own preconceived notions to the table. So, and regardless of that, there hasn't been a proposed solution for the Voynich Manuscript of any kind that has a consensus around it, which means we're really only dealing with hypotheses. In short, and I think we've already said this, but you don't want to believe the Voynich Manuscript Mystery Solved headlines that keep coming out. Statistically, they're unlikely to be true. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's unsolvable, though. Although, to Forrest's point, maybe it is. Maybe the secret died with the person that created it, especially if that person had 
a mental health disorder that led them to create something that the key, the only key to was inside their mind. Or this code will be cracked by coconut crabs. <laughs> I just, I want to combine two, uh, you know, mystery oh, solved the theories crabs. here. Yes, yes. I think about, you know, what you used to say about uh, when we started out, you would talk about live with the question. Sometimes you're not going to get the answer. And that is something that's really hard for humanity as a whole to swallow, which I think is why people keep attacking this thing. Another thing was when you were talking about mental health disorders, I was thinking of savants. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there's folks out there that are familiar with savant syndrome. I want to read a little bit about it here from Wikipedia. This is a condition in which someone with significant mental disabilities demonstrates certain abilities far in excess of average. This is from the Savant Syndrome Wikipedia page. The skills at which savants excel are generally related to memory. This may include rapid calculation, artistic ability, map making, or musical ability. Usually just one special skill is present, and that's something to take note of. Savant Mm -hmm. skills are usually found in one or more of five major areas. Art, memory, arithmetic, musical abilities, and spatial skills. The most common kinds of savants are calendrical savants, human calendars who can calculate the day of the week for any given date with speed and accuracy or recall personal memories from any given date, uh, which my wife can do a little bit that. Really? She can tell you what we were wearing on our fourth date, not even a significant event, like what we were wearing, what the weather was like that day, what we heard on the radio. She has a gift for that. And you know who else uh, has... I think a photographic memory, Mary Lou Henner used to be on Taxi. That's right, she does. She can yeah, remember. she's talked about it. Yeah, she's talked about that. Uh, it's fascinating, but so advanced memory, though, that's different from savantism. Advanced right. memory is the key superpower in savant abilities. Now, approximately half of savants are autistic. The other half have some sort of central nervous system injury or disease. It's estimated that 10% of those with autism have a form of savant ability. So I was looking at this because I remember as a kid watching a 60-minute story on a particular savant. His name was Leslie Limke, who was a pianist, I think, really talented pianist. He could play anything he heard, just heard it once and he could play it. And when I was looking into this and I was trying to find connections to the Voynich manuscript, I found another gentleman named Stephen Wiltshire, who was um, British, pretty amazing. He can go up in a helicopter and fly over a city for like 15 or 20 minutes and then come back and draw like a 20-foot detailed artistic architectural drawing of the city that's completely accurate. And all he has to do is fly over it. When he also draws fictional stuff, they talk about this on a a Wikipedia page about him, how he can draw a fictional scene like St. Paul's Cathedral surrounded by flames. Mm Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, what if the person that created the manuscript was someone like that who had a particular ability? But it goes back to your point, taking the savant part of the equation away where you were talking about, well, somebody is generally a good draftsman or good with type that might not be good at drawings or Mm -hmm. vice versa. It would seem a stretch for somebody to be good at both, although it's fair to say that the drawings are not as good as the lettering in the Voynich Manuscript, I think. I mean, maybe that's a subjective opinion, but... They're done well enough to convey what the plant is. You know, as far as technical skill, I, you know, of course, I think there's some better artists of the time, yeah. but I, I, I'm not to knock it, you know. I know, but I guess what I think what I've learned about Savant Syndrome is it doesn't seem like a fit for me. I, it was an idea that I yeah. had when we started looking right. at this. It doesn't seem like a fit just based on what we know about it now. And... Mm-hmm. I think some people who have savant syndrome have strengths in more than one discipline. I couldn't find any of them where 
they were like both disciplines were necessarily artistic like that. It was usually somebody who could do music and poetry or right, they could right. draw and do the calendar thing or something like that. But it wasn't someone who could sit down and create a book like the Voynich Manuscript. So taking a cursory look at it, it doesn't seem like a fit. If this is a genuine working code and that there is a method to it that has stumped all these cryptographers, that's a little bit of genius right there. Yeah, that may be drawing on savantism of just an understanding of you know, syntax and your own words. And just like I said, it, it, they there seems to be a pattern there, but it's from no known non-exotic language, you know, something more European in its pattern, but something made up. So somebody with a uh, with a savant understanding of languages and being able to create their own, that aspect points to what you were talking about. So, I, you know, that kind of was a dead end for me in terms of uh, proposed alternate theory. Uh, here's another thing. We got an email just today from a listener uh, shortly before we recorded this conclusion section that I thought was pretty interesting. He was reacting to the fact that there was a lack of any mistakes in the scripting of the manuscript that we, you mm -hmm. know, we talked about that in part one, especially. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to read this email from him. He's chosen to remain anonymous for reasons that will become self-evident when you hear what he does for a living. Hello, I've worked as a transcriptionist for a while now, and the recent episode relates to my work in a couple ways. The idea that the Voynich manuscript has zero mistakes throughout the entire work seems almost impossible. I have examined thousands of manuscripts and other works from various time periods, and the majority have at least a few mistakes. Scribbled out words, spilled ink, or smeared words have been present numerous times in all the works I have encountered. I believe the idea that the Voynich manuscript has zero of said mistakes may mean more than first thought. I have read hundreds of thousands of pages from about an eight or 900 year period, and even in the most official documents, there are mistakes present. My head cannot wrap itself around the idea that there are no mistakes in this working due to the crude manner in which most of these workings were produced. Look, I'm not here to say that this is impossible or indicates an otherworldly author to the manuscript, but the level of detail, focus, and endurance to complete a work with zero mistakes of any kind gives me the impression that this manuscript is among the highest level of importance. I have never, not once, encountered anything like that outside of the shorter documents in my profession. My work is mostly confidential, but I have the liberty to say I have worked with some of the most valued manuscripts' workings, several of which are recognizable even by the least interested person, and a working with zero mistakes or the length of 50 or so pages is practically unheard of, let alone over 200 pages like the Voynich Manuscript. Perhaps this manuscript, solely based off the idea that there are zero mistakes, is truly a specimen of incredibly important work. Just that one fact is enough to really ring that guy's bell and have him, you know, send us a letter and say, you have no idea how unusual yeah. this is. You know, like I said, the impossibility of it, like maybe there is one that just no one's noticed, or maybe in the lettering, there is something that's out of place according to the language, the rules of this made up language. I, you know, who knows? Somebody's going to have to really crack the code on this to find out. But, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like maybe within the rules, the grammar rules of this language, whatever it is. Maybe there's punctuation that's off. Maybe something uh, is, you know, throwing off the well, cracking of this code. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is that, and it's something that I proposed, uh, was the idea that if a page had an error on it, it was discarded and started over. Yeah. So who knows if there are mistakes, but I think people looking at the parchment itself with microscopy 
would say there doesn't appear to be anything scratched off. And maybe there was some uh, some mistakes in the artwork and like a bad tattoo. <laughs> Somebody redrew over it or made it a into something up. else. How would you know? These things are fantastical. You know, it's a lot of these different types of plants. Forensically, you could determine if, I think, if different ink was used at a different time or something or a change was applied to a drawing at a different yeah. time. Or... As far as we know, uh, it's, it's all the inks are consistent with the, with the era, uh, and I think mostly uh, everything's applied within a short time span. So it wasn't like 50 years later this portion was worked on. Yeah. There is one thing that has been retouched. Uh, I believe we came across in our research. And it, yeah, we well, we thought that it, was that... done at a later time. Yeah, yes. that somebody who owned the book punched up the colors maybe or had it done where uh, later inks applied. But it's not like first applied and then someone faked the rest of it in the 1800s, probably within the century, but who knows. But anyway, we did come across that, that some parts do appear to have been retouched. Has anyone looked at the idea that the the writing was done by one author and that the renderings were done by somebody else? Uh, good question. Because I don't feel like we, I saw that in anything that we read or looked at. I mean, it must have been considered, so many people have been looking at it for so long, because that's the other thing that I wonder is, you know, yeah. was it some kind of collaborative project, you know? Well, people have wondered if, yeah, if there were other uh, multiple people collaborating on it. And, uh, you know, because there's the other theories that, well, this, it, it's so intense that it'd be hard to have been done by a single person. You know, again, Gordon Rugg doesn't believe so. He thinks there's a method it's not a hoax at the time, but it is a made-up book made to be sold, <laughs> to swindle somebody of the era and most likely Rudolph II. That's a good question. I don't know if, they, if they're able to or not make a connection between the style of the drawings and the style of the letterings, other than they seem to coincide with each other on the page, at least to my eye. You know, because, you, like I said, it wasn't. it's not perfect as far as the layout. You'll see a, a drawing in a corner of a page, and then... Uh, the text kind of curls around to match it, you know, so it doesn't go over. It's not like uh, what you see in other uh, medieval illuminated manuscripts where the monks or the scribes used, a, you know, a line. They're writing on a line, so when you look at it, everything's perfectly lined up. Yeah. That's not usually the case with the Voynich. It's mostly kind of in the same, you know, on the same line and straight, but it, it does waver. So I don't know, again, it, it could very well be a collaboration of, uh, of a couple of people, but I would not say a big group of people unless they kept a really well-hidden secret and kept these things to themselves. And this is their one club document, you could say. Well, I think the bottom line for me, and, and <laughs> this should be no surprise after only having looked at it for a few weeks, is that I am utterly and completely stumped. And yeah. since on top of that, I'm also relatively uneducated compared to the people who work in the company of not only the Voynich Manuscript, but hundreds if not thousands more like it, I'd like to refer to one of the closing paragraphs from the same article in the Washington Post we quoted at the top of the show. This article, by sheer coincidence, if you believe any of this at all, was released mm -hmm. just a few days prior to us recording this episode. And I'll remind you also that it was authored by Lisa Fagan Davis, Executive Director of the Medieval Academy of America, and is entitled, Why Do People Keep Convincing Themselves They've Solved This Medieval Mystery? This is a direct quote from the article. Every new Voynich theory offers an opportunity for readers to exercise healthy, critical skepticism instead of accepting publicized solutions at face value. Proposed solutions shouldn't automatically be rejected, the default reaction of most medievalists, but they should be approached with caution. Seek out expert opinions and do some follow-up reading. It shouldn't take a Voynichologist to spot a leap of logic 
or an argument based on wishful thinking instead of solid facts. It is only by engaging with the critical reading and interpretive skills imparted by the study of the humanities that consumers of media can deconstruct methodologies, assess hypotheses, and judge for themselves the reliability of what they read. And I'm not just talking about the Voynich Manuscript. When we approach an ancient object such as the Voynich Manuscript, we tend to bring our preconceptions with us to the table. The more we burden the manuscript with what we want it to be, the more buried the truth becomes. That's going to wrap up our series on the Voynich Manuscript. Remember that our $5 and above patrons can hear an update on the Somerton Man case from Professor Derek Abbott himself at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Heather Williams. I'm Fern Cito, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Foxtrot, Echo, Romeo, November, Galaxy Wide, Way. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>